gentle good morning, everyone. Welcome. Last time I checked, I think it is Sunday morning, July 7th. Welcome to the ACB convention. <laughs> um, I first would like to thank our entertainment for this morning, provided by Judy Jackson and Stuart Drafts. Um, no, let me see. I used to know how to read Braille until I stood up here. Judy Jackson from Stuart Drafts, Virginia, and Mike Tyndall from Baltimore, Maryland. Piano and vocals. I hope those were the two voices I heard. They were great. Thank you so much. All right. All right, I'd like to now introduce for our invocation Mr. Bawani Isham, who's the Islamic Center. He's with the Islamic Center of Rochester and here in Rochester, New York, to share with us our morning invocation. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. May peace be upon you. It is an honor to be here with you all today to support the inspiring work of American Council for the Blind. As my invocation, I would like to share a verse from the Holy Quran, the Muslim Holy Book, and a brief prayer. This is from chapter 16 of the Quran, An-Nahl, the chapter of the bee. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وقيل للذين اتقوا ماذا أنزل ربكم قالوا خيرا للذين أحسنوا في هذه الدنيا حسنة ولدار الآخرة خير وَلَنِعْمَ دَارُ الْمُتَّقِينَ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ الْعَظِيمُ I seek refuge in Allah from the accursed Satan. I begin in the name of Allah who is most merciful and kind. And it will be said to those who feared Allah, what did your Lord send down? They will say, that which is good. For those who do good in this world is good. And the home of the hereafter is better. And how excellent is the home of the righteous. O Lord, bless this gathering and this convention. O Lord, bless the good works that this organization does for humanity. O Lord, bless all of us and make us of the righteous and 
good doers. Amen. And to lead us this morning in our Pledge of Allegiance, we have several of our ACB J.P. Morgan Chase Leadership Fellows to come forward to the podium to lead us. Donna Browning from Alexandria, Virginia. Amanda Selm from Louisville, Kentucky. And Don Kalman from Medina, Ohio. Thank you. Please stand. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You may be seated if you haven't already. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I... Um, I want to recognize JoLynn Bailey Page when she's free to um, to give us some background on. I thought it would be helpful for all of you to hear. And if you have colleagues who are not in the room, please feel free to share this information with them. JoLynn is going to describe to you the makeup, kind of the layout of this room. So I don't know if you were like me, but when you walk into the room, you go, "Now what?" How is this place laid out? Well, it's, it's, it does have some sense to it. And the microphone placement is quite logical once you understand it. So I thought it would be helpful for you to hear a description. So, JoLynn, thank you. Good morning. Um, even for me, this room is, is cavernous, you know, just to look around and see it and, and walk through it. It's, it's a big space. So just starting um, with the general layout, when you enter the room through the double doors, you are actually walking into the far right rear corner of the room. The room is set to run horizontally, meaning side to side. So we have three banks of tables with a side aisle on the very ends. So there's an aisle running up each side of the room and then between the three tables. So you will have aisle, row of bank of tables, aisle, bank of tables, aisle, bank of tables, and then the side aisle. The, sta the head table and the stage is directly in front of the middle row of tables. So those of you in that middle table will be looking directly at Kim. The podium is in the center of the table. Um, I wanted to let you know too, when we say the pledge, our flags, the American flag is located to the right, at the right end of the head table. We would call that stage right. So for those of you in the tables uh, to the right of the room in the center, you would sh shift slightly to your left, and those on the far left table shift slightly to your right so you know where to look and feel oriented. There are restrooms within this uh, ballroom. They are located... I know, that's wonderful, isn't it? They're located at the back of the room, in the center back. So at the front of the room is the speaker's table, then the center bank of tables, and behind that on the back wall are the restrooms. If you're facing those, the gentlemen's rooms are to the left and the women's restrooms are to the right. 
Um, anything else? Uh, microphones, most important part. There are four microphones in each of the center aisles, in other words, between, those, between the tables. Uh, there are four of them. Um, generally speaking, they're at the second row, fourth, sixth, and eighth. And they, every other row, basically. And then they are located closest to the end of the center tables. So for those of you on the side uh, tables, you're going to make your way across the aisle toward the center, center tables. As for signage, there are signs for your affiliate, your state and affiliate on either end of the tables. So no matter which aisle you are uh, proceeding up, there will be signage to help you find your way. If there are multiple states at the table, the signs are actually running horizontally so that if you're a braille reader, you'll be able to access that more easily. Um, Kim, is there anything else? Good. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I think that was very helpful and well worth the time to, to give us a little perspective on the space. All right. We... Um, we're going to turn to business, and um, I want to recognize, first of all, our um, parliamentarian for this convention, um, Alicia Purcell, um, Matson Purcell. She's been with us in the past. She was not with us in St. Louis because of previous engagements, but she's back and has been with us since 2014. So she's very familiar with our organization, has um, major experience with ACB and with parliamentarian work, and we're thrilled to have Alicia back. So thank you and welcome back to ACB, Alicia. So one of the things Alicia always tells me every year, and I continually forget to do this, is the adoption of our standing rules and our program. Now, I don't forget to do it, it's just that I have it on the program after we start business. And really, we should do it first. So this year, I'm going to make Alicia happy. And we're going to adopt our standing rules and our program. We have to do credentials first. Okay. And then we'll do some of the other, the other items listed. So um, I hope Ralph Smitherman is nearby so we can have our credentials report. Okay, there he is. Good job. And we also need to, um, as part of the credentials report, finish up um, any pending questions that were hanging over us from last night's roll call just to be sure we're, we're, um, we've caught up with everyone and have that all resolved. So I'm going to recognize Ralph Smitherman for the final credentials report. Ralph? Can you hear me? All right. Good morning, ACB. Uh, as you know, the Credentials Committee met yesterday, and uh, Gene Mann gave the preliminary report. Things seem to be in order, and I want to thank the Credentials Committee for their work in this endeavor, and that is Kathy Brockman, Ray Campbell, John Huffman, George Holliday, Janelle Edwards, Sharon Lovering, Gene Mann, 
and Patrick Sheehan. They did a great job for us this year, and I think we're good to go. So, Madam President, if you will allow me to make a motion. On behalf of the Credentials Committee, I make a motion that the affiliate votes verified by the Secretary last evening, together with any amendments thereto, and those ACB members currently registered and certified shall constitute the voting body for ACB business sessions. Motion has been made and seconded. Discussion? All right. Hearing, hearing none, do we need to... Um, no, I think, I think we'll go ahead. No calls for questions. All those in favor of adoption of the credentials report say aye. Aye. Opposed? Thank you, Ralph, and thank you to your committee. Now I'd like to recognize Ray to wrap up any last-minute items relating to affiliates and representation. Patrick can turn on Ray's microphone. All right. Patrick. There we, oh, there we go. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> okay. First of all, Last night we had a question regarding the Arizona affiliate. Um, I have conferred with both the Constitution and Bylaws Committee Chair and the Parliamentarian. If John McCann, assuming you are the only voting member from Arizona here, and you said you were, um, you are allowed to serve on the nominating committee, even though you are an officer, because you are the only voting member present. So John, John if, are you in the room, John? Okay. Are, if, you, if you are able, you are welcome to attend the nominating committee. Are you, would you like to be uh, put into that role? Okay, we can talk off. That sounds good. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Uh, but you are allowed to do that. Okay, so no problem. So let me uh, move down here then. I have... Uh, the second thing I need to deal with, uh, we had two, three affiliates last night that did not answer the roll call, so I'm going to call them again. I'm going to give three calls. If they do not respond, they will not be called the rest, whichever do not respond will not be called the rest of this convention. First of all, we have the Nevada Council of the Blind, do, 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 do. three votes. Nevada Council of the Blind, three votes. And for a third and final time, Nevada Council of the Blind, three votes. The Nevada Council will not be called the rest of this convention. Next we have the New Jersey Council of the Blind, three votes. New Jersey Council of the Blind, three votes. And for a third and final time, New Jersey Council, New Jersey Council of the Blind, three votes. Uh, we will not be calling New Jersey through the rest of this convention. And the third affiliate that did not answer the roll call last evening, uh, let me get down here to them. All right, up, coming up, it's got to, all right, hold on here. Let me get back to my spot here. Okay, let's come back down a little bit. I've got a skirt. Okay. Okay. All right, why are you? There we go. Uh, visually impaired veterans of America, one vote. 
Visually impaired veterans of America, one vote. And for a third and final time, <clears throat> excuse me, visually impaired veterans of America, one vote. While we thank our veterans in the room, and even the room for their service, visually impaired veterans of America will not be called the remainder of this convention. Okay, the last issue I need to uh, handle is American Association of Blind Teachers. Uh, there was an issue, there, is a, there was a person that they wanted to have as alternate delegate that was serving as a delegate for another affiliate, which is not allowed per the Constitution. Uh, can somebody from American Association of Blind Teachers get to a microphone? Have you identified an alternate delegate? And if so, who is that? American Association of Blind Teachers. Uh, have you identified? And I'm not hearing anybody. Right. Okay. Yeah. Just one second. Um, Tabitha Brecky said that she can do it if no one else has. She is their one for their nominating committee. Uh -huh. So Tabitha Brecky said she'd be the alternate. For okay, that so I will. So Tabitha will be the alternate then as well. Correct. And uh, she is not doing delegate or alternate for anybody else, so that is allowed. Is that so. right, Tabitha? That is correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. So and she is present. So let me run through the uh, teachers. Susan Glass is the delegate. Tabitha Brecky is the alternate delegate, and Tabitha will also be going to nominating committee. I also have one other note was given to me privately off mic by Florida. Florida Council of the Blind has changed their chair count to 24 chairs from 20. <laughs> they have 24 chairs at their table, so they are in good shape. Madam President, that completes uh, this. I will be submitting this report to the Communication Center. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ray. Um, Madam President. Yes. Oh, there you go. Recognizing Mitch Pomerantz. Mitch Pomerantz, chairperson of the nominating committee. I know we have a lot of uh, first timers to be on the nominating committee tonight. So let me remind you, please, that we will be meeting at 545. And that will be in the convention center, Highland A. And being the um, person who pays very close attention to time and our Constitution and bylaws. The doors will close at 5.45 p.m. sharp, not to be reopened again until we conclude. Um, given that we're all still learning this hotel layout, I'd suggest that maybe you leave wherever you are prior to the meeting a little early because we had a couple of affiliates last year that showed up a little late and they were not admitted. So please be in Highland A at 545 sharp for the meeting of the nominating committee. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you. All right, is there a motion to, we have a motion on the floor for the adoption of the standing rules and program. Is there someone seeking the microphone? Yes. Okay. This is, this is Carla Rushable. I yes. need to change a delegate. Is this the time y to do that? Yes, yes, please. Yes, okay. I need to change the delegate for ACB Lions to June Link. June Link will be ACB Lions delegate. Thank you. Oh, right. and one other thing. Kentucky has um, the 15 chairs we requested, 
but we will need 18 and we do not have our wheelchair space. All right. Um, first of all, Carla, I did see that you called me. I will get in touch with you about whatever that matter is. Um, so for AC, let me take care of ACB Alliance first. So now for ACB Alliance, June Link is the delegate. Natalie Couch is the alternate delegate. And Adam Rushable will be going to the nominating committee. That's and Kentucky, we're going to update you to 18 chairs from 15. Right. Okay. And a wheelchair spot. And do you, need, do you need a wheelchair? And they need a wheelchair spot. Okay, got it. Yes. Thank you. You bet. All right. Hearing no other discussion, motion pending on adoption of our standing rules. They are published in the program right before the general session agenda. I urge new timers to first timers to review them. Um, all those in favor of adoption of the standing rules signify by saying aye. aye. Opposed? Adoption um, rules, standing rules are adopted. Thank you. All right. Now I'd like to go back and recognize Marjorie Beeman, our advertising and sponsorship coordinator from Austin, Texas, to talk to us about sponsorships for this convention. Marjorie, thank you. Thank you, Madam President. Good morning, everyone. Morning. I'm so glad to see everybody wide awake. Okay, I'm going to read them and give the amounts today. I'm not going to do the amounts every day. Crown Jewel Sponsors, 50000 Ira, Reduced Hotel Rates for Convention Attendees. Yeah, yes. We like that. Diamond Sponsors, 25000 Google, ACB Conference Banquet, J.P. Morgan Chase, off-site ACB educational and recreational events, reduced ticket pricing for all events, Microsoft conference participation and development training for future leaders, Vanda Exhibit Hall and ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk, Verizon, Verizon Media, Audio, visual services in general sessions and all event meetings. Vesperro, ACB radio streaming. Give our diamond sponsors a hand. Emerald sponsors, 15,000. Comcast, conference registration. Sprint, Conference Communication Center and Newspaper. Uber, ACB Radio Afternoon Broadcast. Give the Emerald Sponsors a hand. Ruby Sponsors, 10,000. Adobe Systems, ACB Scholarship Mentoring Program. Amazon, Audio Description Program, AT&T, ACB Workshops and Seminar Program, Cisco's Continuing Education Credits, Facebook, All General Sessions, Humanware, ACB Auction, 
Orcom, ACB Cafe, Spectrum, Interpreter Services for the Deaf-Blind Attendees, and Walmart. Give them a hand. <laughs> Onyx Sponsors, 5000 Buell Fund, Recreation Zone, and ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. National Association of Broadcasters, General Operations Support. National Industries for the Blind, ACB Marketplace. Macular Degeneration, ACB Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Give the Onyx sponsors a hand. Topaz sponsors 3,000, HIMS, ACB Link, ACB Lions, Scholarship Travel. Give them a hand. <laughs> Coral sponsors 2,000, RSVA, Outstanding Student Orientation, Dinner, Luncheon. New York State Commission for the Blind, Affiliate President Seminar. Give them a hand. <laughs> Pearl Sponsors, 1,000. Access Ready, sponsored by Votech. ACB Cafe Day, Sunday, July the 7th. Barclay Damon, LLP, General Operating Support. Lua, Library Users of America, Talking Book Narrator at Convention. The Lighthouse for the Blind Incorporated from Seattle, ACB Cafe Day, Monday, July the 8th. Track Phone Wireless Affiliate and Chapter Development Seminar. Give the Pearl Sponsors a hand. Now give the many sponsors a hand. Thanks to the sponsors. All right, I'd like to um, introduce our diamond sponsor presentation this morning. The representative from Google, um, Sarah Bass Basson, I hope I pronounced her name right, accessibility evangelist, and she's from New York City. Um, Sarah, are you here? Is Google here? Okay, Google is here. Maybe it's not Sarah, Maybe I don't know. Google Forum. Sarah's behind me. She is here. She was looking at her phone. Her Google phone. No, I don't know. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you. Good morning. So, um, good morning, and I thank you for the privilege of uh, having me address you today. Um, my name is Sarah Bassin, and I have the rather enviable title of Accessibility Evangelist for Google. Could there be anything cooler? Um, <laughs> so my role is to help make Google as accessible as possible for Googlers with disabilities. <laughs> so Googlers, that's our internal term for people that work at Google. 
We have a whole bunch of them, like when you're new to Google, you're a noogler, um, and so on. Um, so at Google, we are committed to building for everyone. Uh, Google's stated mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful, which is, uh, you know, a pretty visionary mission statement. Um, also something that's sort of easy to consume. I don't know if you've ever read mission statements of other companies. They're, they can be... Um, you know, sort of pretty formal. And as our CEO has said, as long as there are barriers for some, there's still work to be done. The... <laughs> so the Google accessibility team is committed to making accessibility a core consideration from the earliest stages of product design and through release. And I'll share with you some of our recent product and process improvements. So I'm part of a newly created team called the Accessible Googler Experience. And it was created to address the end-to-end -end experiences of Googlers with disabilities. This, of course, includes the very important issue of making sure that our products work for everyone. But it goes beyond just products and technical accessibility. What's the experience in the workplace for Googlers with disabilities? Are managers and coworkers trained on accessibility topics? Is the physical environment accessible and inclusive? Are we advancing a culture of accessibility? And are we demonstrating our commitment to people with disabilities inside and outside of Google? So it's, it's, it's a great and very comprehensive uh, role. I'll talk a little bit about some of our recent um, products and services uh, with a focus towards those that have um, impact on uh, visual impairment. So Google has developed a tool called Lookout. As you all probably know, artificial intelligence is playing an increasingly large role in our lives, from helping to detect cancer cells or uh, driving cars for us. And with Lookout, the goal is to use artificial intelligence to provide more independence to people in the world who are blind or visually impaired. So Lookout helps users identify information about their surroundings. We designed Lookout to work in situations where people might typically um, have to ask for help, like learning about a new space for the first time, reading text and documents, and completing daily routines like cooking, cleaning, and shopping. By holding or wearing the device, Lookout gives you information about people, text, and objects, uh, and more as you move through a space. Lookout launched earlier this year and has already seen a number of ongoing improvements uh, in quality and performance, thanks in large part to feedback that we get from communities like this.
And we've also expanded our list of supported devices to offer Lookout on um, Samsung, LG, and Google Pixel devices. Um, and now something about Google Assistant. Google Assistant is the brains behind a number of devices like Google Home or smartphones. And we've launched a number of step-by-step -step tutorials to demonstrate how to interact with Google Assistant and to reduce the complexity of interacting with technology. For example, you can ask Google Assistant about your agenda for the day and it'll speak it back to you. You can control lights or thermostats by simply speaking to or keyboarding to Google Assistant. And the tutorials that we've created will show you how to interact with the Assistant from setting it up to using your voice to control your home appliances. In education, the new accessibility section on our Google for Education website has information about Chromebooks and G Suite for education. You can check out our accessibility tools and find training on how to use them to create more engaging and accessible learning experiences. There are many accessibility settings that are built into all Chromebooks and more are available through Chrome extensions and apps. To summarize a few, you can easily increase the size of browser content. And we have the ChromeVox screen reader that reads all text aloud, which is a free browser-based screen reader. There's a mono audio option to play the same sound through both speakers for users with limited hearing in one ear. And you can read about all of these features and, features and more on the Google for Education website. Recently, the disability support team launched a partnership with Be My Eyes. Users can connect through the Be My Eyes app and get disability support for assistive tools and accessibility questions about Google products. And we've now expanded support on Be My Eyes globally. Users can also contact a Google disability support specialist through email or chat or phone. <laughs> I can speak to you afterwards with, uh, with more details or get you more details. Um, we'd like to thank ACB and the community overall for all the help and the feedback that we receive and for giving me the, uh, the opportunity to speak to you. Your feedback and comments help to shape the future of our products and the future of our work, workplace. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sarah. All right. We will uh, now hear from our ACB Angel presentations. And first to speak will be the Angel presentation for Sue Amateur. 
1948 to 2018 from the state of Washington. That's um, Deb. Yes. That is um, Deb Cook Lewis. Deb. No. Whoops. I'm changing that. That is now Denise Colley is taking care of um, Sue Amateur's um, angel. So, Denise, there you go. Thank you. Sue Amateur was um, probably one of the most knowledgeable people I have ever met in my life um, as it pertain to the ADA and civil rights. She, um, she really was the go-to girl in Washington State as it related to those things. She was very knowledgeable and she was very willing to share that information. She, um, excuse me, um, she was um, a, an employee of the Washington State Human Rights Commission for more than, for a number of years, and she was successful in leading efforts to advance the rights and supportive access um, opportunities for people with disabilities in the state. She was the first person with a disability to work for the Human Rights Commission, and she was the only non-lawyer on the state's hearing tribunal. And when she, while she was there, she um, was instrumental in drafting the rules that, that established the right of people with disabilities to be free from discrimination in places of public accommodation in our state. And that information was really, really invaluable to all of us. Sue was um, a person who had definite opinions about things, and she didn't hesitate to tell you what those were. But she did them with, um, I think, a lot of finesse. For 50 years, she really demonstrated her steadfast commitment to assisting the lives of people with disabilities. There was no disability-related issue that she wouldn't take on and try to tackle. And usually she was extremely successful with those. And even in retirement, she did not slow down. Uh, she worked tirelessly um, and worked for hours on the phone in conference calls every single month, helping others and continuing, and then she continued to travel when she could to conventions around the country. I remember at her memorial, her husband John said that she's probably spent over 100 hours a month just on uh, conference calls for the state, conference calls for national, uh, other kinds of calls where she was assisting. She went to hearings with members and non-members in the state who had uh, disability rights issues. I have to tell you a rather funny story about Sue. Um, and I, I just, I really found this humorous because it was so Sue. There was a year when the, at the opening session we were doing angels and we had several angels that year and um, it was going on for a while. 
And all of a sudden, she turned to me and she said, if you ever make a blank, blank, I'm not going to repeat it, angel out of me, I'm going to come back and haunt you for the rest of your life. <laughs> that was Sue. That's just how she was. That's just what she did. As most of us know, Sue in 1975 was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she looked extensively for information on treatment options. And while she was undergoing her treatments, she was working with ACB, ACB through structured negotiation to, um, who were in, and with people impacted by cancer to convince the American Cancer Society to pr provide their printed materials on breast cancer, its treatments, and its coping skills, putting them in braille, large print, and audio format, and making their website more audio-friendly and more accessible. Sue was not going to give up. She would have hung in there absolutely as long as she could because she never took no for an answer. Sue was um, a supportive mentor, she was a compassionate friend, and she was a remarkable advocate. And I remember um, the week that she went into the hospital, this last time, I spoke with her two days before, and I spoke with her the day of, um, the day before her, she passed away. And so when we got that phone call the next morning, it was an absolute shock to all of us in the state because it was not expected. Um, it was determined that the cancer had spread into her spinal, into her spine and other parts of the body. But even as she was coming close to um, leaving us, she still continued to be concerned about the organization and she continued to ask how things were going. When I became president the second time, she was really the person who walked alongside of me and helped me and mentored me and was there to pick up the slack and do the things that she didn't think were really things I as president should have to do. But she did them and she did them graciously. And for that, I will always be grateful. Washington State and ACB will sorely miss Sue because she brought a lot to both organizations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you to Sue um, for all she did. To hear about Marlena Lieberg, I welcome Deb Cook-Lewis to the podium. Deb? Well, thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. And I have to say, on behalf of Marlena, a special shout-out to ACB Radio, because she so believed in ACB Radio. 
So I'm not going to say a lot because, you know, when, when Marlena um, passed away, um, w she'd been ill for a long time, and, and it was easy enough for us to really prepare a wonderful tribute to her, which ACB Radio did. I, again, want to thank Larry Turnbull for pulling all that material together. And then Jeff and I closed that out with a tribute, and many of you called in. So to be honest with you, we kind of, we should have presented her angel right then, but we weren't ready. <laughs> so, um, but... The, the last time I had an opportunity to really, really visit with um, Marlena, and actually with Sue, too, was at my retirement lunch. And, uh, and Marlena came. It was something she really wanted to do, and that meant so much to me because I know that she was so ill. And it was just a great time reminiscing about things. And I thought about the fact that Marlena and I actually, in some ways... I wasn't sure if I had her permission to do her angel because sometimes she and I actually went pretty head to head. But it was still always a lot of fun. We're going to miss her. We're going to miss her advocacy. And she left me with a charge. She told me that her expectation from wherever she would be was to learn via a memo in some way that I had solved the problem of the accessible prescription labeling in Washington State. So um, we're working on that, Marlena. And uh, we should get there actually fairly soon. We've got a pretty good plan. So I just... Um, I'm appreciative of Marlena's contribution to the organization, to the state, to Guide Dog Users Incorporated, and to Guide Dog Users of Washington State. Uh, she founded our first special affiliate, and we're just really glad to be able to um, facilitate this angel. And, um, make, and she's now an angel with one of her dogs, which is also an angel. So there you go. So thank you very much. Thank you, Deb. All right, and it's an honor for me to welcome to say a few words about his father, um, Braden Dashney, um, son of John Dashney, who was a friend of mine from my days back when I was much younger in Oregon and uh, mentored John into ACB. And Braden was a, a lot younger, too. <laughs> He was maybe 15 or 16 years old the last time I saw him. So he's a grown-up man with family and very distinguished. So, Brayden, please come forward and welcome to ACB. Thank you. Okay, there you Thank go. you. Fonzie, lay down. Be cool, Fonzie. Good morning. Um, I'd like to start off by thanking uh, the ACB of Oregon and Friends in Art and anybody else I might have forgotten about who so generously donated for this memorial for my father. <clears throat> my earliest memories of my father are the smell of old books and pipe tobacco, summer spent in the backyard playing in Mill Creek and going to the village inn for pancakes before heading to church on Sundays. <clears throat> memories of riding on his shoulders down to the A&W to eat hamburgers, drink root beer, and watch the trains go by. I remember falling asleep on the couch at the Orientation Center for the Blind while he worked at the swing shift. And of course, most of all, I remember the stories. <clears throat> the stories that began when he started having difficulty reading print would become what I believe most people would know him best for. Stories he started telling with me on his lap in the easy chair right before my bedtime 
would lead to stories told at my school, then a friend's school. Stories that would eventually take him to places as far away as New Zealand and Malaysia and lead to publishing books and CDs that I always seemed to have on him, ready to sell to whomever, wherever he might find himself. His gift for speaking went beyond storytelling. He testified before the state legislature and helped pass Oregon's white cane law. I can remember my father campaigning for the rights of guide dog users, educating local business owners about them, and convincing them to place flyers in their windows that read, Guide Dogs Welcome Here. His advocacy for the blind and work with organizations like the American Council of the Blind, the Oregon Commission for the Blind, and the School for the Blind helped me deal with my own vision loss and to grow up without ever doubting that it was possible for me to lead a happy and purpose-driven life. In many ways, we were two very different people, and I'm not sure that he ever knew that I considered him a role model. But his good nature, humor, and service to others have had a huge impact on who I am today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's, it's good honor. to see you again. It's an honor to meet you as a grown-up. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> Told him it was an honor to meet him as a grown-up. Grown-up to be a great, great man. And I know the ACB of Oregon would welcome you as one of their own. Thank you, Braden. All right. I believe it's time for me to relinquish the podium to our presiding officer of the day, um, a man who helps me a lot with things that I've been doing for ACB, as he should, in the role of first vice president. That is Mr. Dan Spoon from Orlando, Florida. So I present you Dan Spoon. There you go. Thank you, Kim. (laughs) Thank you, Kim. Good morning, ACB. All right, I'm going to ask everybody, everybody, let's take, everybody stand up real quick. Stand up. If you're willing and able, stand up. I want to get everybody a little energized here. So we got some really great presentations coming up right after this. So I want everybody in ACB radio and everybody over at the Hyatt and the Riverside to hear you guys. Three times I'm going to say, I am... And I want you all to answer as loud as you can, ACB. Are we ready? I am. ACB. Better. I am. ACB. One more time. I am. ACB. Woo! All right. Good morning. Everybody, please be seated. (laughs) All right. We have a wonderful program for this morning. We're going to start off, I want to introduce to you Clark Rackville, our Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs, to introduce to you a wonderful partnership from Walmart and Envision America. Just to give you a little background here before I introduce Clark, Walmart sent seven people to be our partners and be here today with us on a corporate jet. This is how important it is to this organization. So here he is, Clark Rackville. Right here, Clark. Awesome. 
Great. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So, as Dan said, my name is Clark Rockfall, the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for ACB. Uh, on Thursday, I will have been with ACB for five months now. So, and one of the reasons I was so excited to join ACB is collaborative announcements like this that we have here for you today. Uh, so we just heard in Marlena's angel presentation about the work that she did in the state of Washington on accessible prescription and prescription labels. And that has been some critical work of the ACB national office as well. So about 10 years ago, ACB and Walmart started collaborating together. That relationship has really flourished over the past year or so, including a trip of our executive director, Eric Bridges, to Walmart headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas for a National Disability Employment Awareness Month presentation. And that kicked off some conversations that I was brought up to speed on earlier this year. And over the past few months, we've been working very closely with some representatives and their teams who are here today. And I don't want to steal their thunder, but I, I will say thank you to Walmart and Envision America. And I would like to introduce Amanda Tolson, the Director of Sale for Envision America. And following Amanda will be Warren Moore, Vice President of Health and Wellness Operations for Neighborhood Markets, and Kevin Morgan, Regional Health and Wellness Director for Sam's Clubs. Please give them a warm welcome. Good morning, everybody. This is Amanda Tolson with Envision America. Um, so is everybody having a good time at the convention? That didn't sound convincing. <laughs> That's better. Um, so I'm really excited to be here this morning and talking in front of everybody. Um, even more excited that we have Walmart here. I am so proud of the partnership that we have with them and what they're doing in our communities. Um, let's give them a round of applause. So I'd like to hear, um, by the sound of your claps, how many of you know about Script Talk? And how many of you use Script Talk? Very nice. How many of you know Walmart? <laughs> and how many of you are using Script Talk at Walmart today? Ooh, I hear, I see. Yes, so, and I wanted to say that because I wanted to make sure everybody understands that all Walmarts and Sam's Clubs throughout the United States will offer Script Talk based on request. So if you need Script Talk and your pharmacy does not provide the service, you have a place to go. Um, by, I want to hear some claps on this one. How many of you want Script Talk, but you've been unable to get it with your pharmacy? It sounds like you have a home to go to. <laughs> um, so 
Again, I'm really proud of this partnership. I think that Walmart has set a precedence for other pharmacies that this should be available upon request at the pharmacy counter and that you won't have to wait for these services anymore uh, through mail order or any other means like that. And I really think that's, that's my piece here. Who's, who was next? Mr. Warren. Here he comes. Thanks, Clark. Thanks, Amanda. Good morning. I'm Warren Moore, and I get the pleasure to, to work for Walmart. I'm a pharmacist by trade and been with the company 17 years. You know, at Walmart, our pharmacy business has been serving customers for over 40 years. We have a history of launching products and programs that have transformed the industry. We believe that our customers should not have to break the bank to treat their chronic diseases, and we also are committed to accessibility and medication safety for all patients. Since 2012, Walmart and Sam's Club have made Script Talk audible prescription labels available at all pharmacies across the nation. As many of you know, Script Talk prescription labels are provided for patients who are blind, low vision, or print impaired. And this technology reads prescription information out loud to the patient. It reads the patient's name, the drug name, dosage, use instructions, warnings, amongst other things. Best of all, this service is provided at no charge to our patients. Upon a single patient's request, we equipped our pharmacies to provide this service to our patients. With the proper equipment, all Walmart and Sam's Club pharmacies place an RFID label on the bottom of the patient's prescription bottle. The patient then places the bottle on a small battery-operated device called Script Talk Station that is provided by Envision America. We are proud to continue our partnership with Envision America, who is the leader in the pharmacy accessibility for blind, low vision, and print impaired, and they've been doing it for more than 20 years. Walmart, Sam's Club, the American Council of the Blind, and Envision America agree that this is t that it's time to stop making blind, low vision, and print-impaired patients wait for talking labels and make them readily available upon request. So today we stand here in partnership with these organizations and we look forward to serving this community for years to come. Thank you for the opportunity this morning and I hope that you enjoy the rest of the conference. Good morning, Kevin Morgan from Sam's Club. I have the Northeast. Um, I will tell you, we have got a handful of clubs uh, with Sam's Club that offer this service as well. And I'll tell you, the biggest thing that I've heard Warren say and Amanda was request. So uh, patients that request, 
will very timely have this delivered. The pharmacy is already set up to take care of this in a very quick amount of time. Uh, biggest thing is request. I love to get into our clubs and tour this process. Um, our pharmacists are committed to care of patients, and this is just another area where we can care for patients at a deeper level. And I'll tell you that our pharmacists are very proud of this and look forward to expanding the service to others. So thank you very much and have a great conference. So ladies and gentlemen, please let's give another hand for the great work and collaboration that Walmart and Envision America are doing. Again, this is over 1,200 stores and this is nationwide. This is Walmart being a leader in this space. You know, uh, Oregon recently passed an accessible prescription label state law. Walmart's not waiting for other states to follow the lead of Nevada and Oregon. They're out in front on this issue. And if you'd like to learn more and sign up for Script Talk, uh, Envision America has a booth in the exhibit hall, and that is booth number 27. So again, yes, and there will be information on the acb.org website, uh, and more information and press materials will be rolling out in the, the coming weeks and on the a ACB Advocacy Update podcast on this issue. So again, thank you, Walmart and Envision America, for your leadership. Good. Thank you, Clark, and thank you, Walmart and Envision America. Isn't this fantastic? For all of us in ACB, whether you're in an urban center or a rural community, there is a Walmart and our Sam's Club near you. What, an, what a chance to always make sure that you have prescription, audio, accessible prescription drug labels. Next, uh, we are going to hear from Marty Schultz from Miami, Florida. He is the uh, executive director and CEO of Blindfold Games. Anybody remember Blindfold Games? Accessible Games? How many of us can remember? I, my wife and her sister Anita used to sit in the computer night after night and play Yahtzee between, across the country, right? Yeah. Wow. But Marty's got some exciting new services that are going to come our way with Objective Ed and other, uh, and other things, that accessible issues he's working on today. So let's please welcome Marty Schultz. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Marty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Hi. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Marty Schultz. Uh, thank you for inviting me here, and um, I appreciate it. Uh, just for, uh, could I hear both from applause? How many people actually have heard of Blindfold Games? Yeah. Thank you. So, this all started um, about five or six years ago, uh, and it all started with my daughter uh, when she was 12 years old. She's not visually impaired. And she was working on her birthday wish list. And like most kids, every day before her birthday, she'd write out a new wish list, rip it up, and then write out the next one the, ne the day after that and the day after that. And this was back in 2012, and I thought, there should be an app for that. And decided I either could create the app and then focus test it with her friends or make this into a STEM learning opportunity for the kids at her school. So I contacted the head of school and said, I want to run an after-school club for about six weeks, meet with the kids 
uh, three times a week for an hour, and the kids and I will successfully will create this app. And after getting fingerprinted and going through a lot of rigmarole just to be able to hang around with these kids, I was given permission, and the kids and I created the app, and we were done about six, six seven weeks. We put it into the app store, and while it, it did okay, the head of school comes back to me and says, Marty, can you run the app club again? And by the way, after you drop your daughter off in the mornings, can you teach the middle schoolers how to program? And I did this for four semesters in a row before I realized why they had parent volunteers teach first period of middle school, and that's because it takes the kids 45 minutes before they calm down to learn the regular things. But anyway, back in the app club, uh, the kids said, we don't want to build some stupid app, we want to build a game. And I said, well, if we're going to build a game, it has to be different from every other game in the app store if I'm going to do my programming talent to do this. So I sent the kids off for two weeks, and when they came back, I said, do you have anything that's unique? And all their ideas were clone of everything else in the app store. So I said, instead of uh, cloning something that's out there, let's do something really different. Let's build a game that doesn't need the screen. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, let's build a driving game for blind people. Now, at the time, I had never met anyone who was visually impaired. But in any case, I took a girl and I put her in the middle of the room. She was about in sixth or seventh grade. And I said, I want you to act like a cow. So the girl in the middle of the room started mooing. Moo, moo. Then I took a boy, also in sixth grade, put a blindfold on him, and I said, I want you to walk up to the cow, not touch the cow, and get to the other side of the room. And by listening to the girl mooing, he was able to navigate, and from that, figured out how he could navigate through sound. So with that knowledge, the kids and I built that first game, Blindfold Racer, where you drive with your ears instead of your eyes. If you drive too far to the left, the music gets louder in your left ear, too far to the right, the music louder in your right ear, and you avoid, no, you avoid um, animals like barking dogs, and you aim for noisy prizes like popping popcorn. Well, we built the game, it has about 60 different levels, and then we put it in the Apple App Store, and it jumped to the top of the accessibilities list. And uh, I happen to, I go back and forth between Miami, where I live, and Boston, and I happen to be um, on one of my trips back to Boston, I heard from uh, Brian Charlson, and he said, the next time you're in the, in the area, can you stop by my office? So I was up in Boston, I contacted Brian, he said, instead of coming by the, the Carroll Center, can you come by my house? So I got to his house, which is a few blocks from Perkins School, and there waiting for me was Brian and Kim and Judy Dixon and Doug Wakefield and their guide dogs, and it was quite a shock to me, but they told me they had been up all night playing blindfold racers so that when I arrived, they could tell me what they liked about the game and what they didn't like. And they talked my ear off for about six hours, but I learned so much at that meeting, and this was the same meeting where Judy asked me for a 9 by 9 Sudoku game, Kim asked me for a solitaire game, and Brian asked me for a cryptogram game. So, since I had nothing better to do, and I was kind of semi-retired at the time, I went back, and like every game, I would pop out, every month I would pop out a new game. And this was also the same time when we put Blindfold Racer out there. It was jumping to the top of the accessibilities list uh, for games in the App Store, and I started hearing from people all over the country. And uh, at one point, um, I, was, I was producing more and more games, and to date, at this point, we have about 80 games, about 25,000 regular game fans. That original game, Blindfold Racer, has been downloaded over 50,000 times, 
and in total, there are, all the games have been downloaded about half a million times. Now, there, there are a couple of cool stories that came out of Blindfold Racer before I, I move on to the next point, which is one, I remember when I was first testing it with one of the teens at the Miami Lighthouse of the Blind, uh, one of the blind kids came up to me and said, uh, after playing it for about an hour, he said, is the screen dark when you're playing? I said, yes. He said, well, you better put something on the screen because sighted people will think their iPad is broken. So I did that, and actually he's the, he's the teen boy who ended up naming the game and gave us the Blindfold brand. And then when I was testing it a few weeks later at the Broward Lighthouse for the Blind in Fort Lauderdale, one of the girls who had been blind since birth, after she played for a while, I said, well, what do you think of it? She said, this game is so cool. I'm going to so beat the butt of my sighted peers. <laughs> So, like I said, at this point, we have over 80 games. Uh, we have card games like Crazy Eights and Spades. We have action games like Flappy Bird and Space Invaders. Puzzle games like Color Crush and Sound Search. Word games like Word Search and Word for Words. Sports games like Bowling and Basketball. Casino games like Blackjack and Roulette. TV game show games inspired by Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. And board games like Checkers and Crossword Puzzles. Well, we also have a couple of utilities that we've built over time. About three or four years ago, I was, listening to, I was watching the fireworks on July 4th, and I was listening at the same time, and I thought, this would be very interesting. Fireworks are just as interesting to listen to as to watch. So I first created a fireworks app that's out in the store, and then somebody contacted me. I think one of the blind testers we have, we have about 50 blind testers worldwide, said, why don't you make an audio e-card game? Um, app. I said, what do you mean? He said, some way that I can take an audio sound and then combine it with a greeting and send it to somebody. So based on fireworks and then adding about another 300 sound effects, we create a blindfold greeting card. Now that's been downloaded, I think, between 5,000 and 10,000 people. And then about two years ago, one of the testers told me that she had been in an accident where her guide dog got in a fight with another dog and she fell down. She hurt herself and it was just a, a bad situation. She couldn't get her phone out in time to be able to video record what was actually happening. She said, can you make an app that would allow me to start video recording out of the back camera as soon as the app starts? So I thought, that's a good idea. So it took me about two or three weeks to build that, and we put it out there as a free app, and it's called Blindfold Video. And, and if you're ever in a situation where you're facing any sort of deni denial of, of service or refusal of something, or in a stressful situation, you can just pull this out and start recording the video, and then you could send that video to, to somebody else to help you resolve that problem. So before I get into what we're... Thanks. And so, so before I get into what we're doing next, I just want to thank the entire blindness community for what happened with Apple, the kerfuffle with Apple a few years ago. And, and this really amazed me. I had come out, I had, by this time I had probably about 60 apps, and uh, I had submitted a new version of the horse race game, the spades game, and I think roulette. And Apple writes back to me saying, we're rejecting your apps because they're all identical. And this was an Apple was trying to clean out the app store and get rid of apps that simply got all their content from the web. And they said, any app that looks like the same. So since I looked at the menus of all the games, since the menus are very similar to make it easy to use, they said these are similar. I write back to Apple, and everything is through email with Apple. You can't really talk to a person. 
I read back to them and said, no, these are really different games. One is a sports game, one is a casino game, and one is a card game. We go back and forth like that for about three or four weeks. Then they say, okay, you're right, they are different. However, you have too many games. I say, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> they said, we want you to take your games and bundle them into packs like casino games or card games. I said, I could do that, but there are two big downsides to doing that. Firstly, it means everybody who's ever bought a game from me will have to purchase this new thing all over again because there's no way to understand if they purchased the old one that would have a different product, product number. And secondly, it's unfair to people who aren't real good at scrolling through multiple screens. So they'll never find half of the games in there. I said, they said, well, if you don't do that, we're not going to let you publish any more games and we're not going to accept any updates to your games. I said, okay, you, you make the rules, but I think some people might be annoyed. So I put out a notice within the games, out on my blog, out on my Twitter feed, out emails, and I said, look, unfortunately, because of an Apple decision, you know, the, uh, I, there will be no more blindfold games. Um, if you have a problem with that, maybe you should contact Apple. I have never seen such an outpouring of support in my life. And I want to thank everyone here for the efforts you put forth, which has really led me on, on an uh, even more important mission. But suffice it to be say that a week later, Apple realized that they had made a mistake, and now we have a great relationship with Apple. So, as we were putting out these games, I started hearing from some teachers of visually impaired students and some orientation mobility specialists say, saying they were using some of the games to actually teach skills for young kids. And one of them, Diane Browner, who's been a TVI in the North Carolina area for over 30 years, told me she was recommending blindfold bowling and blindfold racer and blindfold barnyard as a way to teach certain skills. So I thought that was interesting. And then... Uh, I happened to be visiting at the Lighthouse Guild in New York City, and I was talking to Mark Ackerman, who, who was running at the time, and Mark said, you know, your games are interesting, because I was there to say, hey, can you promote these games to adults for entertainment? He said, you're missing an important thing. You should be making educational games for young kids, because young kids who are visually impaired, pre-K, pre you know, zero through four-year-olds, are not um, keeping up with their peers because they can't model the behavior of their peers. They don't see what's going on. So the, by the time they hit school, they've already, they're already behind in most, a lot of social activities and a lot of other activities. So I said, okay, that's interesting. Let me see if, if there's a, a need for this. I, uh, there happened to be an, a summit in Tucson at a dude ranch a few months later, back in May of 2018, uh, where all the leaders of Lighthouse, a lot of the leaders of School Supply got together, and I went to visit them, and I said, what do you think about me starting a company producing educational games for kids based on their individual educational plan? And it would be able to teach a lot of the skills these kids need to learn through gaming. And everybody said, yeah, it's a great idea. But, you know, there's a lot of difference between them saying it's a great idea and really knowing it's going to be successful. My background is in starting software companies. I've done it about five times successfully. So I decided, well, let me ask the people who play the games if they think it's a good idea. Amongst these people, there are probably several teachers, maybe a hundred or so, who might answer a survey. I put together a survey, had some professors help me turn the survey into a real research survey, and expecting to, get, to maybe get a couple hundred responses, I got over a thousand from TVIs and O&Ms and assistive technology specialists saying, this is desperately needed. So I figured, okay, this is a big project that we're going to do. So let me just scroll down a little here. Sorry, my notes. 
this is a fairly big project. If we're going to endeavor into it, we need to raise money for this. And the investor was saying, well, how important are your games? And I didn't know. All I had was anecdotal stories, and I didn't really understand the reasons of why this was being used. So I flew out to the AER conference. Um, it was a conference of, of TVIs and O&Ms in uh, Reno last year. And I, would, I was wearing my uh, bright green Blindfold Games t-shirt, and I would walk up to every single teacher, and I'd say, have you heard of Blindfold Games? And if they said yes, I said, well, do you use them with your kids? If she said, she, he said yes, I said, can I talk to you for five or ten minutes? And I learned three things at the AER conference. First, I learned that the games are a great reward. If the child was doing something correctly or pursuing their lessons properly, they would get, let them play one of the blindfold games for about five or ten minutes as a reward for their, for their good behavior. Second, um, a lot of these TVIs are itinerant TVIs. They visit the kid only once a week in a place like North Dakota maybe once a month. Normally, when they go back, because the child has not practiced the skills they're trying to teach them, every week, week after week, they teach the same lesson over and over again. When they had a blindfold game that practiced that skill, the kid made progress much more quickly. For example, in Blindfold Barnyard, it teaches clock and compass directions, and if they were able to play Barnyard, the kids were learning without realizing they were learning. They were simply having a good time playing the game. And then thirdly, I learned that the, the games are actually teaching leadership skills. These are all audio games. Visually impaired kids are much better at audio games than their sighted peers. So suddenly, the kids were being thrust into the position of being a leader, showing their sighted friends how to play an audio game and doing much better than they were doing at it. So it, it took, it, the games had a lot of value. So we took our my expertise in blindfold games, basically building accessible audio games since 2013, and combining that with a company that had previously started in the year 2000, we were one of the largest, we were the largest vendor of providing IEP, Individual Educational Plan Management Software, to school districts in, we were the biggest vendor in Massachusetts and in Texas. We had about half a million kids being managed under our plans. So we took the, our expertise in special education with our expertise in making audio games and formed a new company called Objective Ed. And Objective Ed is, is focused on helping teachers and parents and schools adapt to this new era of gamified learning for blind and visually impaired children. And we're working with pre-K through 12th grade students teaching them both core and expanded core-based games, uh, work, looking at their IEP goals and objectives as a way for the games to operate, We're, uh, focusing on working with TVIs and O&Ms and assistive technology specialists with a web dashboard so the teachers and the parents can actually see the progress the child is making. So if you look at um, what kind of skills can actually be taught through gaming, we can pretty much do the entire expanded core curriculum. Sensory efficiency, concepts like audio location and movement cues. Orientation mobility, starting with virtual concepts like finding their way around an iPad to combined where you're moving a, a phone around your body and going left and right, to things like a, a Pokemon Go or concepts like that where you're walking around and teaching you wayfinding concepts. Social interaction, as I mentioned, where uh, the games have two or more people play together to learn cooperation and leadership. Braille literacy, where we have some innovations that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, a lot of things in assistive technology and teaching the voiceover gestures of the iPhone and other devices. And finally, looking at ways to make gaming, through gaming, language arts, math, and science more fun. So the way a teacher normally uses it is 
uh, based on the IEP, they determine what skills they want the child to learn. The games will, we have one or more games for each type of skill, so the game would focus on that skill. So if the child is simply learning laterality, in other words, left versus right, the game would mainly focus on that skill versus compass directions or clock directions. The kid plays the game having so much fun, they play and play without realizing how much they're learning. The game gets more complex as the child gets better to keep them engaged and um, in, entertained. And finally, the teacher or parent can see their progress on an accessible web dashboard. So if anyone's familiar with Blindfold Barnyard, uh, our new version under Objective Ed, uh, the barnyard starts the teaching left versus right, then up and down, then 12, 3, 9, and 6 o'clock north, south, east, and west, and then finally all the compass directions and all the clock directions, and then in the highest level, things like locating with a clock and then dragging to a compass direction. Um, I won't kind of go into how that works because I'm on limited time, but the other thing I want, I want to talk about some of our other innovations. We, right now, we have about 10 games ready to, that are being pilot tested in a number of schools around the country, uh, both schools for the blind and public schools. Uh, we have a new invention uh, called Braille Sheets that we won the Louis Braille Touch of Genius Award back in, uh, in February, and we were given it at CSUN recently. And the idea behind this is for teaching early Braille literacy. There's a lot of interesting ideas within it, but the, it starts with being able to put a sheet of Braille paper on an iPad and having the iPad know what's on that Braille. There's a little magic behind it, but it's pretty cool. So basically, the, the, it, it, it works on iPads and iPad minis and Android devices. And by being able to build a game around that, you can um, solve a lot of early Braille literacy issues. So for example, uh, a hangman game, as a child moves their finger along the alphabet, on the iPad, with the Braille alphabet, they could be playing some hangman. So if the word is hangman, they'd, they'd basically move through the letters, reading the letters until they found the, word a, the letter H and double tap and have an H. Or they could use it to read. As they re move their fingers across the letters of the words, it would read the letters of the words, like, hello, how are you? And from that, we've actually built a number of games, hangman, word twist, um, we're teach, using this to teach things like consonant, vowel, consonant words, sight words. Um, one of the things that, that we did when we put this out is we figured, okay, we'll create a bunch of Braille sheets that, that will teach things and have games in there. And then we started showing it around to different experts, um, including Kim and, and Judy and others. Uh, they said, you know, not only should you create these sheets, you should be able to let teachers create sheets. So the way a teacher creates a sheet is she types a story or a word list into a, a, a web dashboard and then prints out a sheet of paper on a Braille embosser or, per, or embosses on a Perkins uh, Brailler and then puts that on an iPad and then the kid can play with that. So let's say uh, a classic use of this is a, a girl is, who lives in Boston really likes horses and she's learning the AR contraction. And the teacher wants to write a story where the girl can practice that AR contraction. So the teacher goes to the web dashboard, writes a short, five or six line short story about horses, prints it out on the braille sheet, puts the braille sheet on the iPad, gives it to the child. The child reads the story at home. It doesn't need the teacher around. And then one of the audio questions that'll pop up from the story is, where does the horse sleep at night? The child reads through the story, finds the word barn in its contracted form, and double taps the screen. So now the teacher has been able to create her own lesson content 
entirely and have the child practice uh, the level of braille she's at while she's at home. Doesn't need the parent cooperation. The teacher... Even better, the teacher can see the child's progress on a web dashboard. To actually see the child is getting this better and better and better each time she plays the game. Now, when I showed that to, uh, to people like Dr. Penny Rosenblum and others, she said, Marty, that's great, but you're missing an even bigger picture. I said, what do you mean? She said, why don't you let teachers share their uh, braille sheets with each other? I said, oh, so we went back to our group, our group and we said, so we created a concept in the PROC where, you can, where when you create a Braille sheet, you can put it up in the repository. What that means is now a teacher in Seattle can download the sheet created by the teacher in Boston, so if he has a student and that student is at the same level of contractions, also like horses, he simply downloads that sheet, prints it out on his Braille embosser, and goes home, goes home and plays that same game. So now we have not just teachers individually spending a lot of time creating their own content, we have teachers sharing content with each other across the country. So imagine the power of 6,000 different O&Ms and TVIs creating content for each other. And it's not just content for Braille sheets. Imagine when we do the, uh, a, a version of something like Jeopardy, where teachers can provide their own history questions and answers, or anything else they could put up on the website, in the, reposit, the cloud repository, just by pushing a button, and then everybody has access to it. And teachers can like each other, and from that, we've built, in essence, a professional network. Kind of like LinkedIn, but focused around letting TVIs and O&Ms and assistive technology specialists be able to communicate with each other. So that even starts to address some of the uh, employment issues that are going on within a lot of the uh, school districts in needing more and more TVIs and O&Ms. Right now, there's a massive shortage. There's young, com young, young ones coming out, but a lot of the older ones are retiring. And by establishing now this professional network where teachers can share con lesson content with each other, they can also help each other. They can comment on each other's lessons and give suggestions. They can also start mentoring some of the younger teachers coming out of the schools. So we have a great resource on the older TVIs and O&Ms, a lot of younger teachers coming out, and now through communication online, they can be helping each other. So Objective Ed is focused on solving a number of problems from the games to the professional network to the web dashboard to letting all these teachers cooperate with each other. And we're very excited about our, our company and we're even looking at ways of applying artificial intelligence into some of these uh, games and technologies to keep improving everything. So, that's kind of a quick summary of what I've been up to on my summer vacation. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, feel free to reach out to me. It's easiest to reach me through uh, marty at blindfoldgames.org. Um, and if you have any suggestions or ideas for anything you think we should be doing, our, our primary focus now is in solving some of these educational problems and working ki with kids pre-K through 12th grade or transition. Um, we will continue to be doing blindfold games, but most of my effort of our team, which is now up to about 10 people, um, is focused on solving this bigger problem for, the, uh, for all the uh, visually impaired kids in the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Marty. That was fantastic. What a, what a wonderful opportunity for our TVIs across the country. 
And th- objective Ed, let's get Marty at blindfoldgames.org. All right, keep that in mind. All right, next we are going to hear from Deb Cook Lewis from our Board of Publications from the state of Washington to present the Vernon Henley Award. Deb? Good morning again. Let's see, I've got to find the most. There we go. It's too tall. <laughs> These tall people. <laughs> All right. So uh, the Board of Publications each year presents the Vernon Henley Media Award. And this award goes to someone who has really made a difference in media either portraying blind people or for blind people or about blind people or just about anything related to the media. Uh, I found this nomination this year to be a little different and unusual for us, but actually it was very, very exciting. And uh, we did um, determine that among our nominations, this is the one that we would do. So we are excited, and you've just heard why, to present the Vernon Henley Media Award to Marty Schultz from Blindfold Games. And Sharon will read the plaque. We'll read the plaque if we can uh, get get up here to see it. Um, it says, uh, Objective and Blindfold Games, Marty Schultz, um, President. And then it says, For developing accessible games that help blind students learn a variety of useful skills. July 7, 2019. And this is great. And you just need to know, I had never played any of the games because I'm not a game player, so I felt like if I was going to give out this award, I would need to do that. And I need to put everybody on notice that I'm really pretty busy now and playing games, and I don't have too much time for the rest of this crap. So thank you very much. (laughs) Marty, please. Marty for a few comments. Marty. Uh, 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 thank you so much. Uh, thanks again, Kim and, and Brian. And thanks, Dan. Um, also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of this. And, and to show my appreciation, if anyone sends an email to me, Marty, at uh, blindfoldgames.org, I'll send you a coupon for a free game. So, thanks. Thanks again, Kim. All right. Once again, thanks, Marty. Uh, next, uh, we have a celebration in the house. It is the 40th anniversary of CCLVI, Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. So I'd like to present to you their president, Sarah Conrad. Good morning, ACB. Good morning. Um, It's a privilege to be able to speak a little bit about CCLVI with you this morning. We are proud to celebrate 40 years of serving the low vision community. We are also happy to celebrate 40 years of partnership with the American Council of the Blind and its other outstanding affiliates. I'd like to take a few minutes this morning to highlight CCLVI's purposes and how we advance those purposes. One of our purposes is that we deeply believe in and advocate for the right of people to use any amount of vision they have. 
We so, yes. <laughs> you can clap for that. <laughs> we celebrate vision of all types and stages and encourage the use of appropriate services and technologies to use any usable vision. Another purpose is that we pride ourselves on offering a space for people with low vision to share their stories and concerns. We also effectively educate the public about low vision. We provide outreach to support people with low vision. And finally, we offer support and encourage research on preventing further vision loss. I'd also like to highlight a few ways CCLVI has and will continue to further these purposes. These are just a few that stood out to me, but there are many and have been many over the past 40 years. First, people with low vision make up a large percentage of the visual impairment community. We offer a place to gain support and advance advocacy efforts for many people. Our affiliate also provides a place for people of all ages and life stages. The diversity of life experiences in CCLVI greatly influence our historical, present, and future success. In addition, CCLVI's concerns are both similar and unique to the concerns of the blindness community as a whole. Having some usable vision offers its own set of unique challenges. I've heard many of our members talk about the difficulty of having one foot in the blind world and one foot in the sighted world. That can be a tough place to stand. But we also, yes, but we also identify with concerns of everyone in ACB, such as accessible prescription labels, transportation access, and technology. CCLVI should be proud of its crucial and unique role in advancing ACB's and CCLVI's missions. One other area that I'd like to highlight is that CCLVI invests in the future of the visual impairment community by offering our own scholarship program for students with low vision and other visual impairments to succeed and grow their abilities. You'll hear more of that from our scholarship winners tomorrow. On a personal note, I want to share that CCLVI has given and will continue to give me a place to belong and opportunities to help make the world a more accessible place for all people. And I know this feeling is common among my CCLVI colleagues and friends. Although I wasn't alive 40 years ago when CCLVI began, <clears throat> I sincerely thank the founding members of CCLVI for bravely setting out on a journey to serve people with low vision. Although our organization has changed greatly from what it was then, I imagine many of our fundamental goals and purposes are still the same. As we celebrate our first 40 years, we also look excitedly to the next 40. Our work has significantly influenced ACB and will continue to increase the opportunities in our world for people with all levels of visual impairment. In closing, I'd like to thank ACB for being an excellent parent organization for CCLVI. It is our deep desire to continue partnerships across the organization. 
It is an incredible honor and privilege to help lead CCLVI into its next 40 years. And I sincerely thank all of CCLVI's leaders and members for encouraging our efforts. Congratulations, CCLVI. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, Sarah said, uh, just to, to mention to everybody that there is a celebration party for CCLVI free of charge, 7 o'clock tonight in the Riverside Riverview Ballroom. So if you'd like to come learn a little bit more about CCLVI and their history, please join them. Thank you. Did you have anything else? Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. We're, we're on schedule, guys. Congratulations. So we've got a time for a few announcements. I need the RDC folks to get to a microphone. And Sheila Young from FCB, I believe, had an announcement. Or do we have any other announcements for RDC? Mike Godino from the MMS program. Okay. Mike stepped out. Who's at a mic? I'm at. Dave, Carla oh, David Trott. <laughs> yeah. Just want to remind everybody. David Trott. The Braille, the Braille recognizing form. David Trott. Go ahead, okay. David. Just want to let everybody know the Braille Forum raffle is alive and well. Again, this year, uh, Alan and I are working the raffle, but believe you me, it's more Alan. Alan is our champion. He does a great job every year, but you can get your tickets from one of us on RDC, one of the board of directors, or from the Mini Mall. If you want to use a credit card, we suggest you go to the Mini Mall, and we want to thank Carla and her staff at the Mini Mall for their participation. Remember, this is a good fundraiser for us every year for the Braille Forum, so please jump in there. You can do from one to five people, so if you don't have the $50 to do it alone, get four or five of your buddies or two, whatever you need to make the ticket out. And also remember that the first prize is $5,000. Thank you. Next, I'd recognize Leslie Spoon from the auction committee. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I'll get right. a little closer. Okay. So I have a really big mouth, so you know the auction is coming up. We'd love to see everybody Tuesday night. Please come early and look at all the items. Six o'clock is preview. Seven o'clock it starts. Um, if you have any auction items, please leave them at the information desk. And please, please come and bid, bid, bid. Thank you. It is in the what, grand ballroom in the Hyatt on the second floor. FCB mic is not on. Let's now see if we've got that mic. No. No? Now it's okay. on? Yes. Jim Crott on behalf of the Florida Council okay. of the Blind. Jim Crott, you have the floor. Thank you. I'm pleased to announce that Florida Council of the Blind is making a $500 donation to ACB and a $500 donation to ACB Radio. Thank you, Jim. We always accept donations. Thank you so much, Florida Mr. Council of the Blind. Mr. Chair. Next, Carla Rushable is recognized from Kentucky. Yes. I want to remind everybody that the Mini Mall has lots and lots of things for you to see. Please come by. Check out our new jackets. Check out the new uh, wireless earbuds in a charging case that are very, very similar to something with Pod in their name. Um, we have a, a Bluetooth speaker that uh, you can put your phone on and it will charge. Just lay the phone right on the speaker and there it is. Um, and many, many other new things. ACB caps by request. 
Um, and also many of the things that you like uh, from the past, yeah. like your name badge, ba uh, name badge pouches, the credit card cases, and uh, we also okay. will be yeah. having a special okay. sale tomorrow, a one-day sale, so watch the newspaper for those one-day sales. Thank you, okay. Mr. Chair. And we're booth one, two, and three in the exhibit hall. Mr. Chair. Thank you, Carla. Uh, just for information, the mics are turned off till the, the gentleman running the sound mixer turns it on for your mic, so you may not hear an active uh, mic until it's your turn. So, but recognizing the woman, I it's don't know the name. Man, I'll speak, Mike Rudino's not in here, I'll speak for the MMS. Um, please Jean remember. Man, thank you. Um, the MMS, there will be somebody at the table this afternoon. It's booth number four, and there are daily drawings, and there's some good prizes there, and then anybody who ups their amount or signs up for the first time will be eligible for an um, Amazon Echo or a, a Toshiba, Toshiba integrated TV. So, and there are, there are daily drawings. There are lots of gift cards. It's, it's probably a we'll $60, $70 value. So it's a good time to sign up. Thank you, Jean. And we Chair. have one more announcement from a lady at a mic, and then Ray will be our final announcement for break. So I, please identify yourself. This is Kathy Gerhardt. I'm uh, with AAVL. That's Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. Senior power. And we are having a, we are having a raffle. Uh, we are selling um, six tickets for $5 or one ticket for $1. And the first prize is $100, second prize $75, third prize $50, and the drawing will be Tuesday at our mixer. And you don't need to be there to win, but we'd love for you to come. And I am in the West Virginia affiliate, but I get, I've sold all my tickets, so I know that Jeff Tom has some, and everybody knows he's at the California okay. affiliate. Thank you. We had thank you so much. We had a little confusion. The Garrett, same mic that Carla Rushable was on. If you could identify yourself, please. Mr. Chair, this is Amanda Selm. I have Amanda Selm. Yes. Uh, hello, Amanda. Please, please continue, Amanda. And then Ray will be our final announcement. We will have an opportunity for more announcements before the end of the session. So, Amanda, please proceed. Thank you. This is an announcement to remind all convention attendees that are 40 and under that you are invited by ACB Next Generation to attend our meet and greet tomorrow evening from 4.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. You don't have to stay the entire time. However, we would love to meet you. If you have any questions, please contact me. I'm at the Kentucky table or Claire Stanley from the ACB National Office. We look forward to seeing you all there. Location is in the Street Craft Kitchen and Bar located in the Hyatt Regency on the same level as the lobby. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. And now, Ray? Real quick, uh, John McCann, if you could approach the stage sometime during break and we can consult about that, uh, that matter that we talked about earlier. Thank you. Just a few... Um 
a few points of information related to the uh, microphones in the aisles. So we have four microphones in each set of aisles. So as you are looking at the podium, uh, the aisle that's on the left side, as you look at the podium, starting at the front right with Alabama and going down that way, those mics are in the second, fourth, sixth, and eighth row, and they are going to be numbered mics one, two, three, and four. So we have a spotter up here, and when they see somebody standing at mic three or mic four, they will let us know, and we will acknowledge that person on that mic. You don't have to grab the mic. You don't have to spit into the mic. You don't have to yell at the mic. The, the, the mixer sound person, Patrick, will, will see you and identify you, and we will recognize you. Aisle on the right side aisle, those will be starting in rows two, four, six, and eight. Mics five, six, seven, and eight. Just to give everybody a pre-warning, when we finish this program, we're going to do a couple of door prizes, and those are going to be announced by our New York delegation at mic seven. So they're going to be the first ones up. Right now, I'd like to introduce our ACB secretary, Ray Campbell, just to do a couple of final clarifications so we can get the certified ballots, accounts, out to everybody for the newspaper. So, Ray, please. Okay, I'm coming. We're fixing it. We're worried about it. Okay, I'm trying to find this mic here. Thank you, Dan. Um, this is just this is the last time you'll hear from me for a while, hopefully. Um, two clarification, two two uh, additional two items. One, ACB of Maine has made a nominating committee change. They will now have Cheryl Peabody going to nominating committee rather than Mary Ellen Frost. And second of all. Due to personal reasons, even though he could serve, John McCann has chosen not to serve on the nominating committee. He did try to find engage other folks from Arizona and was not able to do so. So Arizona will not be represented at tonight's nominating committee meeting. Those are all the things that I have. I will now be submitting the report to the communication center. Thank you. Thank you, Ray. Uh, I do see that we have a gentleman at microphone six. Uh, if we could... Uh, Hello? Hello? Is it related? Is it a point of order, point of clarification? A point of clarification. Oh, all right. Hold one second. I believe I recognize Doug Powell's voice. That's correct. Go ahead, Doug. Thank you. While you're talking about microphones, uh, you'll notice that I got your attention by saying Doug Powell from Virginia, not Matt, Mr. Chair or anything like that. I think it'll speed things along if people remember that they're supposed to identify themselves at the microphones by their name, not by the chair. Thank you so much, Doug. We appreciate that. That, that, that will help us immensely if you just give your name and your affiliate. Thank you. What? Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, next, we are going to hear from our World Blind Union president, Fred Schroeder from Vienna, Virginia. Let's give a big ACB welcome to Fred Schroeder. Well, good morning. It, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Let me begin first uh, by acknowledging a special contribution that 
the American Council of the Blind made to the World Blind Union this year to help support delegates from developing countries attend our General Assembly in 2020. And I'll tell you more about the, the General Assembly. But uh, I did want to begin by acknowledging that I um, want to say I've had the real privilege and opportunity to visit many parts of the world. And one of the things that I have noticed is that there are linguistic differences even among English-speaking countries. Now, you're all aware of that. If you hear someone say, where is the lift, you know what they're asking for. They're asking for the elevator. <laughs> All right. But there are some others, uh, not necessarily incomprehensible, but different. For example, what we call the sidewalk, do you know what it's called in England? They call it the pavement. Now, to me, the pavement is the road where a car could run you over, so I'm not going to be walking down the pavement uh, at least, if I am, I'd be walking with some caution. What do you suppose the sidewalk is called in Australia? A footpath, exactly, which is kind of logical, but I think of a footpath as something you hike on in the mountains. So there are some differences, but one I thought I would tell you about that I never would have figured out. There is a term for what we think of as a counter, like the kitchen counter, in Australia. They call what we think of as a kitchen counter, they call it the bench. And I had a friend from Australia visiting and had given her a cup of coffee and she said, well, I'll just put my empty cup on the bench. And I'm thinking, I don't have a bench in my kitchen. I wonder where she has in mind to put it. So uh, I tell you that to say that one of the challenges of international work is linguistic. One of the challenges, there you go. I, I'm not sure what language that was. It wasn't, wasn't one that I know. I uh, apologize. So it is linguistic, but of course it's also cultural and there are different customs, but there are also different structures. So for example, when we say the word rehabilitation in the United States, we typically think of the full range of services that a blind person needs to be prepared for employment, including all of the, the training of learning how to function as a blind person and the training to be able to do a specific job and then eventually helping the individual secure that employment. But in most parts of the world, the term, uh, uh, excuse me, the term rehabilitation is separate from employment-related services. So what we would think of as perhaps the adjustment to blindness training, that would fall under rehabilitation, but not specific job preparation. So there are differences, and we work with those differences in common cause. So what are some of the issues? Well, if you were to list the problems that blind people face here in the United States, those same problems are common among blind people throughout the world, and it stems from the same root cause, low expectations, society misunderstanding the capacity of blind children and adults. In many parts of the world, the problems that we experience are magnified. We all have known blind children who had difficulty getting access to good quality Braille reading and writing instruction. 
But in many parts of the world, blind children are simply not educated. UNESCO, the United Nations Scientific and Scientific Educational and Cultural Organization, estimates that in developing countries, only 2%, 2% of children with disabilities are in school. And so if a child is not in school, is not educated, opportunities for that child as an adult become very, very limited. The same challenge that we face in the area of employment is faced by blind people throughout the world. That isn't surprising. However, in many parts of the world, the problems that we face are magnified. So the problems are not unique. However, they differ in the way that they are expressed. In other words, here in the United States, blind children are not excluded from school, but they also are not uniformly granted a high-quality education comparable to their sighted peers. So the, the struggles, the problems that we face are the same problems but with their own unique cultural and economic twist. So, what does the World Blind Union do? Well, we try to address those issues in a way that cannot practically be done by organizations within a single country. In other words, those cross-cutting issues. Back just over a decade ago, the World Blind Union launched what it called the Right to Read campaign, recognizing that literacy is foundational, that children need to be able to read and to write if they are going to benefit from an education and if they're going to be productive adults. One of the very practical barriers that we faced is limited access to materials in accessible formats. And so the work of the World Blind Union eventually led in 2013 to what is called the Marrakesh Treaty. The Marrakesh Treaty is short for, let's see if I remember, the Marrakesh Treaty to facilitate access to published works for persons who are blind, visually impaired, or otherwise print disabled. How's that for a bureaucratic UN <laughs> title? Uh, so we call it the Marrakesh Treaty, and it did a very simple thing. It creates an international treaty instrument that allows country to share books that are produced in accessible formats. Before the Marrakesh Treaty, that could not be done. So, for example, when a, when a popular book, like a Harry Potter book, came out, it had to be produced in alternate formats in the United States. And if you other English-speaking countries wanted that same book, they had to produce it again. So it had to be recorded and brailled all over again in Canada, the United Kingdom, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand. I found that there are approximately 60 countries, 60, 60 countries that have English as at least one of its official languages. So when you think about the small number of books that are available in accessible formats, and then you add on top of that the, the redundancy, individual countries reproducing the same book in the same 
language in an accessible format, that limits the availability of books. So this is something that the World Blind Union worked on. However, there is a synergy. In other words, because of the advocacy of national organizations who then worked with their representatives, their representatives to the World Intellectual Property Organization, a United Nations agency, to say this treaty matters, this treaty is important, this treaty will help blind people in our country. That gave us the political support to get the Marrakesh Treaty adopted. And there's many things I could say about the Marrakesh Treaty. Uh, it, like any other solution, does not solve all of the problems. And it is still very much in the implementation stage. But it does a couple of things. One is that it creates the mechanism for sharing books, but it also did something else. When I spoke at the World Intellectual Property Organization, I hope I didn't sound uh, like I had a chip on my shoulder, but I said, this treaty is not just about giving me more novels that I can read to pass my lonely hours. This is about helping blind people achieve full integration into society, to help blind children become educated, to help blind adults be able to work and to work at a competitive level. In other words, the Marrakesh Treaty is serious because the needs of blind people for full and equal opportunity are serious needs. This is not about benevolence. This is about civil and human rights. So that's the Marrakesh Treaty. There are a lot of details that I will spare you. Uh, there are other things we've been working on. Since about 2010, I've been working with the United Nations on a similar instrument that would uh, create an international standard for an audible alert signal for these very quiet electric and hybrid electric cars. Now, as I'm sure you all know, the United States has a law that requires manufacturers of these vehicles to have an alert device. And this year, model year 2020, I guess it would be, that comes out this fall, uh, half of the fleet of, of new electric and hybrid electric cars must have the alert sound. And then a year from now, they must all have the alert sound. Now, ones that are on the road don't have to be retrofit, but they will eventually be gone, and we will have electric and hybrid electric vehicles that, that we can hear. And this is essential to safety. But again, putting it within the context of taking blind people seriously. In other words, why bother with an alert sound if blind people have nowhere to go? But if blind people are working and active and participating in their communities, going to school, doing the things that other people do, then it makes sense to make the roadways safe for blind people and other pedestrians. So the United States has its own national law and its own national regulations, but the idea was that we have a uniform standard worldwide 
this actually is helpful to the automobile manufacturers because then they don't have to have different different solutions for different markets. Uh, so we've been working on that. We got partway there with a standard under a thing called the 58 Agreement, and I'll spare you the details of all of that. Uh, but for the most part, in roughly 50 countries, including almost all of the major, major manu uh, auto manufacturing countries, we do now have a standard. Now, it's not, in my opinion, quite as good as the U.S. standard. In other words, the overall sound level is not required to be as loud as the U.S., and there are some other technical differences, but it certainly uh, is, is, a, is a powerful start. And this is the kind of thing, again, that the World Blind Union can work on at an international level. I want to touch on, on another on another emerging issue. You've all heard about autonomous and connected vehicles, or what I call self-driving cars, which is kind of an in, inaccurate layman's shorthand. But these self-driving cars are coming. And I don't mean you have to dodge them. I don't mean they're coming literally, but they will be here, they will be here before long. All right. Now that's a wonderful thing. I've, I've, ne well, I've owned cars for my kids, but I've never owned a car that I could operate, or at least a car that I should be operating. <laughs> All right, so presumably, if I, if I live long enough, I noticed I was out of the age demographic for that gathering that was announced before the break. Uh, <clears throat> but perhaps I'll have a self-driving car. They say that one of the early uses of this self-driving technology will be rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft. And so at some point here, you will call up your Uber and an autonomous vehicle will pull up. Now, there are some obvious accessibility issues. You need to be able to tell the car where to go. Uh, and, you know, if, if you get in the car and it's cold, presumably you want to be able to turn the heat on and other things. These are basic what, what I put in the category of accessibility features. And that I think the auto manufacturers understand. They haven't necessarily fully addressed them, but I think, I think they understand those issues. But there's a second category of issues that I, that I call usability. That uh, maybe this is a distinction without a difference, but for example, if I call an Uber, and the app says your car is here. Well, where is here? I'm standing out in front of the grocery store. Where is my Uber? I need to find that vehicle. Uh, so that I would put in the category of usability. And there are some other things. So I'm in the vehicle and the app says you've arrived and the car stops. Well, am I actually at the door or is it stopped at a red light 60 feet from the door which is across the intersection i these are these are things that automobile manufacturers need to know about so representing the world blind union in may i spoke at a thing called the international transport forum which is uh, directed to 
ministers of, of transportation from around the world and talked about some of these issues. And also at, at a UN conference back in March, I talked about them. But I made one other point. I talked about the need for literacy as far as taking blind people seriously. And I used that same concept when talking about issues around pedestrian safety, that, that only if you understand that blind people have the capacity to work and to participate in the community, to go to school, to go shopping, that to take us seriously is at the heart of the need for those considerations. I talked about it, but in a slightly different way with respect to connected, uh, autonomous and connected vehicles, and that's this. When you talk to people about accessibility, what's the first thing that pops into their minds? Cost, extra cost. And to say it bluntly, because we don't have much time, it's what I call a social benevolence model. That when you talk about accessibility to the person hearing it, they're thinking, what you're asking me to do is spend more money to accommodate you so that I feel good. That's the message they hear. Maybe I'm still cranky from being outside the age demographic for that gathering, but, <laughs> but I do think that's very often the message. In other words, if you said to a hotel, these days, thank goodness, they mostly have braille on the rooms, but if it didn't and you said you ought to have braille signage, they would think to themselves, you're asking me to, take, to do a charitable act for the blind. And if you point out they have signs, print signs for sighted people, they think, well, yeah, of course. Of course we have. They don't think of that as an act of charity for sighted people. So when I talk about connected and autonomous vehicles, I ask people to move beyond the social benevolence mindset of accessibility and usability for blind people to an economic benefit model. So here's what I mean by that. We estimate, well actually the World Health Organization estimates, that there are approximately 253 million blind and partially sighted people in the world. So what I said to this conference of transportation ministers is I've said, as new automobile technology is developed, your marketplace does not appreciably change. When you introduced a hybrid electric car, you had to either persuade your existing customer to buy this new technology or uh, your existing customer might buy the old technology, but essentially your, your pool of customers didn't change. Now you might have tried to attract a few customers from your competitors, but if you think of the worldwide market of people buying cars, new technologies in automobiles don't change that marketplace. But I said, autonomous vehicles do. If done correctly, you have now added a quarter of a billion potential new buyers. That is not, that is not something that happens with your other technologies. And so if you are going to take advantage of a quarter of a billion potential new buyers, your product needs to be not only minimally functional, but attractive 
and suited to the needs of that constituency. These are some of the things that the World Blind Union is doing. We have our General Assembly scheduled next June in Madrid. And if you're able to come, I think you'd find it a tremendous experience to be there. And of course, ACB will be represented. It is a member organization of the World Blind Union. So in closing, again, I just want to thank you not only for your participation, your ongoing participation, but particularly for the special contribution so that we can help people from developing countries come and learn how to advocate and advocate effectively for the needs of blind children and adults. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Fred. And, and, and Fred, I just want to add that with that waiting list for those autonomous vehicles, when the World Blind Union starts creating that list, if you could put the spoons on the top of the list, we're new buyers. And, and raise second on that list. And, and for those of you who would like to have an opportunity to, to mingle and talk to Fred more during the convention, he will be here today through tomorrow afternoon. He will be speaking at the Multicultural Affairs Luncheon today, the Braille Revival League Breakfast tomorrow morning, and the Voices Around the World uh, International Relations Luncheon uh, on uh, tomorrow at, at Monday afternoon. So one thing about Fred, he may leave Monday afternoon, but he is not going to leave ACB hungry. So thank you, Fred. Next, we are going to hear from Karen Kinniger from the National Library Services for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. Give a big round of applause to Karen Kinniger from Washington, D.C. Good morning, ACB. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity once again to give my very favorite speech of the whole year, and that is to this group. You are always so enthusiastic, and I love coming. Woohoo! <laughs> <clears throat> so, basically, what's happening at the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped these days? A lot. And what I'm going to do this morning is just give you kind of an overview of some of the things that we're doing. And this afternoon, I'm apparently going to be grilled by Lua. So if people have questions about um, if some of these things, there will be an opportunity then to ask them. So here we go. What are we doing today? Well, when I first came to NLS seven years ago now, we did about 2,000 talking books a year and about three to 400 Braille books um, a year. This year, we're going to do 5,000 talking books. I'm really excited about that. The way we're, um, we're doing the latest commercial titles, the ones on the top sellers list, we're able to do those very, very quickly and get them out when everybody else is getting them out. Um, part of the thing that we are doing in order to increase the number of titles, though, is that our system was built for 2,000 titles, so we would put 2,000 titles on cartridges and send them out to the network libraries. We're changing our paradigm, sort of gradually, but in order to accommodate 5,000 titles, some of those titles will be only on BARD. Now, we will have the same number of titles on cartridges that we have had traditionally, so we'll have about the 2,000 at least 
probably more, on cartridges and announced in talking book topics and Braille book review. But we will have additional titles that are on BARD that will need to be gotten from there. So how do you go about that? Well, if you're a BARD user, how many of you are BARD users? How many of you would like to be BARD users? All right. Excellent, excellent. So we're putting some of the older titles on BARD, filling in some of the series, some of that sort of thing. Um, we also have about mm, six or 7,000 locally produced titles on BARD that we don't have in Talking Book Topics. Those are books that are done by some of the network libraries. Um, Massachusetts has a lot of them on there, Montana, Washington, Texas. Um, many, many of our states have an, a lot of titles on there that are done in their local studios. Um, so those are great. Those are also um, on BARD. Um, how do we get the people who aren't on BARD access to those titles that are on BARD? Well, one of the things that we're doing to accommodate this increase in titles is moving our libraries to what we're calling duplication on demand. Duplication on demand is basically a system whereby the library says, oh, I see that Karen Kenninger is wanting these next seven books. I'm going to put them all on one cartridge and send them to her. So you have multiple books on a cartridge rather than having the customized one book, one cartridge me mentality that we've had before. And you're able to get exactly the books that you want and you can get as many as you want. And of course you can send it back when you're done and get, it, get more books. The, we know that one of the problems that people were struggling with was that with multiple books on a cartridge, some people weren't able to find the second book. Um, didn't realize how all that worked. So we're doing what we can to spread the word about that. But we also made a change to the talking book machine system so that if you read a book to the end, you will get a notification that says, press enter to go to the next book. Or not enter, it's actually play. Um, and if you decide you don't want to do that now, then the next time you turn that um, talking book machine on or um, use that cartridge, you'll get that same message so that you'll be able to go from one book streaming right into the next book without having to use the bookshelf function. The bookshelf function is alive and well, and for those who are comfortable using it, it works very well. But we know that this was an important thing. So um, try that out if, um, if you're on your talking book machine. If you're not updated, if you don't get magazines, um, or if your library is not one of our duplication on demand libraries yet, you may not have this function on your machine, but you can get it downloaded and added. And we are encouraging everybody to use BARD if you can, because this is where, this is where all the books are and all, all the magazines. So if you can find a way to use BARD, that's wonderful. Um, you'll have more access to as many things as you can possibly, well, probably not as you could possibly want. As Fred was saying earlier, we have a you know, worldwide system to um, work through, but at, at NLS we're doing the best that we can anyway. Um, we're also working on streamlining Braille production. Why? We don't do enough Braille books, and my mandate is we've got to find a better way of getting them produced for two reasons, one of which is we should have more Braille. We should have it easier to use, and we should have it readily accessible. Well, Braille has been on the back burner for many years, but it is not anymore. 
So one of the things that you've probably heard me talk about is a Braille e-reader. That would be like a refreshable Braille device that you could read talking books on. And I'm here to tell you that after seven years of struggle, (laughs) we are on the cusp of of being able to introduce Braille e-readers to the NLS program. Now, what we're, what, where we are is that we have contracts to develop two um, Braille e-readers. Uh, the contracts are on hold at the moment, but they'll be sprung very quickly, I think. And we will be able to move forward. There's some, some um, development that has to happen. So it's going to take a while. One of the things I have learned working for the federal government is nothing happens quickly. <laughs> But it does happen if you are persistent, and we have been very persistent. So we will be developing um, the prototypes this year. We expect that by next year, we will have, be next spring to summer, we will have a pilot in place. Now, the pilot is actually going to be limited to a few of our Braille lending libraries at, at the beginning because we have to make sure that the distribution system works, that the um, training and um, technical support are in place and working properly, that the maintenance process are all all in place. So, and besides, we don't have enough funding to do everything. So we're going to do these pilots initially. We have asked Congress for a um, additional funding for the next five years to buy about mm, 3,500 of them a year. It's going to be a fairly slow ramp up. Our records show that we have about 42,000 Braille readers. Um, Some of those Braille readers already have their own devices and probably won't be waiting for this one, but some of them will. So it's going to take a while to to build it up. But if we get the funding we've asked for from Congress, and we will be getting it with your help for um, supporting that request, um, we will be able to move that program forward more quickly. So our 2020 through 2024 budgets we've asked for 2.375 2.375 million dollars per year to um, to buy additional talking book machines. I mean, not talking book machines, Braille e-readers. So, what's our Braille reader e-reader going to be? Well, it's not going to be the highly functional note taker that I'm using to read my notes on. It's going to be intended to read NLS books initially. So, it will render BRF and TXT files and PEF files, which we don't see much of here. Um, it will also have upgradable software so that we'll be able to make um, changes to it going forward. It will have 20 cells and it'll have eight dot cells. It will have a Perkins style keyboard for data input. It'll have search functions. It'll have a bookshelf function. It'll have a bookmark function. It'll have a Bluetooth connectivity so that people with um, iPhones will be able to or laptops would be able to connect it and use it as a braille display or as a braille input device. It will have internal storage for standalone functioning so that you don't have to have it hooked up to anything. And it'll also have wireless connectivity so that you would be able to go directly to BARD to download your braille books. Um, The titles will be distributed either through direct download or initially through by, on cartridges that you would connect to the device, just like the talking book cartridges. What it does not have, it will not have an onboard note-taking capability and it will not have um, onboard text-to-speech. 
So that's our, our, um, our product that we're working on, on developing and that we should be able to get out to our network, our um, pilot libraries by next summer. Hard copy Braille will continue to be produced in the near future. In time, we will also develop a new Braille format that is navigable like the talking book format so that when you put it in your Braille e-reader, you'd be able to move around it with the same facility that you can a talking book. I think that's really important. I've gotten really used to it. Um, and in time, I think hard copy Braille will be on demand rather than just automatic. So, um, but this is over time. We're looking at several years of implementation. So that's one of our exciting things. Um, a second exciting thing that we are doing, and this has been a long time coming as well, because we're feds, <laughs> is that we are changing our name slightly. And I'm very happy about that because for seven years I have heard people complaining loudly about the term handicapped in our title. And we're taking it out. We also think that our new title is going to represent the people that we serve a little better because the, what we're, call, we're going to be um, more user-centered with not just blind, but also with print disabled. Print disabled is a term that has been introduced in the last few years, kind of through the Marrakesh Treaty, and it's going to be more specific or more uh, inclusive of the people that we will be serving in the future, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, the Library of Congress has a real focus these days on user-centered everything, and that seems pretty normal to us because we've always been, I think, very user-centered, but the library has been a research institution, and they wouldn't let me make a change to a name that wasn't user-centered, which is okay. And the term blind is staying in the title because this is our program, and we want everybody to know it. So the new title will be the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. And we are hoping to roll that out in October. We've got to get some visual identity stuff done, which might hold it up a little. But um, this fall or, or January, we're definitely going to get this done. So I'm happy about that. Um, just as a, a, a minor note, and maybe it's not a minor note, but we, images are something that has always been um, a, a little bit out of reach for us. You know, when you've got a picture in a book or you've got a, a map or a, whatever. And NLS has traditionally not done a whole lot about that. I admit that. Um, but we're looking at doing more of that. We are looking at, for our custom narrated material, of having much better image descriptions than we have had in the past. And I just wanted to let you know that I wanted to make a public statement so all my people understand we really are going to move forward to having more of that. We have done a couple of things and looking at what it's going to take. One of the things that we just now finished is Dungeons and Dragons, the handbook. I don't know if anybody here is a Dungeons and Dragons person, but... Um, the handbook is now available on BARD for download and on cartridge, or will be on cartridge. And um, Marty's doing a fabulous job with all of these games. Dungeons and Dragons is one that's been around for a long time and is very text-based. So we're able to do that, including with some of the, the images in it. Um, so we're looking at better ways of doing images, both for Braille and for audio. 
We're looking at legislative changes. The Marrakesh Treaty Implementation Act amended the Chafee Amendment in October of last year, and it made some changes in the definitions that govern copyright exceptions. One of the changes that it made in was to change the definition of eligibility or an eligible person to match what's in the Marrakesh Treaty. So basically that is a person who is blind, a person who is visually or perceptually disabled, or a person who has a physical disability. They have taken that eligibility requirement away from what it used to be, which was to say, well, whatever NLS says is it. This, that's changed. Um, the ex it has also changed the term specialized format to, spe to accessible format. What does that mean? It means that when we have always looked at specialized format, we're saying Braille is a specialized format. Our talking books are in a way that nobody else can play them. That makes them a specialized format. Accessible format means a broader option for our, our program going forward. So in time, we will be looking at e um, probably text-based EPUBs, and we'll be looking at other things as well. That'll, that'll take some time, though. It's also changed or defined authorized entities, um, which includes our network libraries, it includes NLS, it includes a lot of non-NLS-related organizations in the United States, as well as around the world. Braille, um, the Lutheran Braille organization, the Jewish Braille Institute, the Xavier Society, all of those would now be technically authorized entities, as well as student disabilities offices and universities. So that's a change. And the other big change in the Marrakesh Treaty Implementation Act is that it has um, allowed import and export of materials across borders. That is the, the very big thing about it. Um, the legislation that we're looking for is to conform NLS's legislation to the Marrakesh Treaty Implementation Act, including their new definitions and the ability to import and export. Because right now, although we can import, we can't export in any big way because of the fact that um, our funding legislation says that we only serve residents of the United States. So we're asking for the uh, right to the legal authority to export digital materials and to work from organization to organization. Um, the new legislation will pri preserve priority for blind and veterans at, um, in case there's a sh any kind of shortage. And it formalizes uh, what we've been doing for years, which is serving U.S. citizens living abroad. It broadens our ability to get music by taking away the requirement for uh, permission, and it gets rid of terms like handicapped and organic dysfunction, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, the new bill does not have a number yet. It's being considered by the Senate Rules Committee and the uh, Congressional Budget Office is looking at it. Um, so we will let everybody know when a bill, a number gets assigned to it so that we can move it forward and get with all of your help. Because as you are well aware, it's your help that helps us to get what we need for, for our program. So one of the things that Fred mentioned is the Marrakesh Treaty itself, and this would allow us to participate in the Marrakesh Treaty. But until it does, we are kind of stuck. Um, initially, we will continue to work through a project that we've been working through to get some things for specific requests, but it will be on a fairly small scale until we can ramp up and get the permission. So um, 
checking my time here. Okay. All right. <coughs> We know that in a lot of the, the um, libraries around the country, for example, we have a great need for more Spanish material and Russian, Mandarin, Cantonese, Vietnamese, um, a lot of different languages with, that would serve our immigrant populations better than what we can do now. So there's also out there in the world a great interest in our collection because frankly, we have the best English collection in the, in the world probably the best collection in the world, the biggest and the highest quality. So there's a lot of people waiting for us to be able to export. <laughs> we'll have to manage that, I guess. So what's happening in the future at NLS? The digital talking book machine was introduced in 2009, which is 10 years ago now. It's been great. Um, having digital talking books that we can download from BARD has been fabulous. And we've got you know, our apps and all of that. But the next generation of talking books is going to be based on digital devices with digital distribution. What that digital device exactly looks like, I do not know. We will be doing a lot of um, testing of concepts in the next year or so to see what works for people, primarily for our, our um, biggest population, which is our older folks. We'll be looking at whether they can use a talking book machine effectively the way that many of us use Alexa or Google Home, basically talk to it and, make, and get it to do what we want it to do. So we'll be looking at voice user interfaces. We'll be looking at what types of devices make sense. Um, the, the kind of idea at this point is something that looks like a lockdown smartphone, but um, that's, that's also got to be tested. But the idea that we will have digital connectivity, that it will be part of an internet of things, I think is a given. So that's going to be a revolution in terms of how we receive our books, how our libraries help us get our books, and all of that. Um, we're doing a Gallup survey. We've done one Gallup survey. We're working on a couple of others in the, the next several months to figure out who's got Wi-Fi in their homes. How, who, who would need to have cell service provided to them for this particular purpose. Um, and then we're trying to figure out, we are working to figure out, we will figure out, uh, ways of funding digital distribution so that if a person does not have Wi-Fi, does not have any cell con connectivity, but is a member of the NLS program, that person would be provided a lockdown device that would be able to be used through the cell network or for for digital distribution of talking books. Um, that's, the, that's the idea right now. Um, and I think once we can, I think we'll find funding. We're looking at a couple of different options. So this is going to be a radical change. And a lot of the people that we serve are not going to want it. Frankly, a lot of the people that we serve didn't want a, t a digital talking book machine either. Um, and the cassette machine has had a very long tail. I think we're mostly done with it, but we still see a few out there and we still see some circulation of cassettes. Some people don't like to make changes. This change will not be the kind of quick rollover that we tried to do with the talking book, with the digital talking book machine. Um, it's going to be a, a phased rollout that will take, I think, a few years to complete. So people who want their talking book machines are going to be able to keep them. Um, but we are looking at this change in definition and this change in definition of, 
of um, our, the people that we serve, including this perceptual disability thing. That's sort of like dyslexia and whatnot. And that is going to increase the number of people that we serve. It's going to be easier for people with dyslexia to sign up for NLS. It's also going to require that we serve possibly twice as many people as we do now. So it's going to be really important that we have a less expensive and more um, more efficient way of, of providing that service. And we kind of expect that people who are cited who come into the program under these other uh, issues would be able to use their own devices or whatever. So having a good digital program is going to be critical in order for us to be able to meet everybody's needs. We think that the talking book machine will probably remain to be used primarily for blind people, but this digital di di this digital device that we have yet to completely identify is going to be something for everyone. So. Um, these are the main things that are happening at NLS. It's kind of a broad sweep of things. We have a lot of other things going on. They're looking at moving us to a different location and some other things like that. But basically, this is where we are. We are anxious to hear from you as to what, what your ideas are with regard to these things. And I look forward to hearing from you in the future. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Karen. And Karen will be speaking at Lua uh, Affiliate uh, later on this week. So keep, look that up on your pro this afternoon, very, very soon this afternoon on your program. And we have a little extra time. So we're going to take uh, three questions. So if people would like to move towards the mic. And again, the uh, first mic we would like to recognize is Mike One. Good Please morning. Give your, name, give your name and what's, what affiliate you're from, and Mitch, then ask your question. Mitch Pomerantz, California Council of the Blind. Good morning, Karen. Hey, Mitch. Um, I love the digital talking book machine. I just wish the two that I currently have, I have one, Donna has one, um, worked better. Have you had any issues with reliability? I've had issues with, with the battery draining, um, uh, just couple of weeks ago, it started up when you turn it on um, and you have it switched on and you're just turning it on and off, it automatically uh, resets back to the first message you get when you turn it on. Uh, and I've had issues with, with a previous one. So I'm wondering, it, are there any issues that you're dealing with regard, uh, with regard to reliability? With regard to reliability, is that that's the word you're saying? It's yes. a little hard uh -huh. to understand you. Um, battery life. Batteries. Gosh darn it, batteries. You know, batteries were a big deal when they made the talking book machine because <laughs> everybody knew that we needed batteries that lasted longer and worked better than the cassette batteries. Um, we are buying millions of dollars worth of new, better batteries every year and sending them out for repair uh, units to put into the talking book machines because we know there was a problem. So yes, we are, doing, we are working on that from the perspective of adding, of adding more batteries to the system so that we can make sure that all the machines work. And the other thing, of course, is that your, your local library will be happy to swap your machine out if it doesn't work for you, and then they'll fix it. Um, yeah, so. I'm going to be taking two of them uh, down to Braille Institute shortly after we return from the convention. Okay. 
Oh, okay, good. Send them back and okay. let them let them. Uh, and if you don't need them, send them back and just use your iPhone. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> oh well. Next microphone five. Is it working? Hello. There you go. Okay, uh, I'm Carrie Johnson from Tennessee, and uh, I'm a volunteer at our library, and uh, met you a couple of years ago when you came to Nashville. So good to see you again. Oh, thank you. Uh, I love the old talking books, uh, record, uh, cassette, whatever. Uh, what is being done to get more of those into digital format? And, um, well, that was pretty much it. <laughs> I'm sorry, what's this question? I, can't. I think you said, what have we done to convert? Oh, to convert the old ones? We yeah. have converted about 40,000 cassettes to digital cassette titles, yeah, to, to digital um, talking book format and put them up on BARD. So they're out there. Um, there were a few that we weren't able to convert because the tapes that were, the original tapes were bad, but we did everything that we could, except I think there might have been like a 1970s diabetes manual or something like that that we thought would be bad to convert. But other than that, we've done them all. So that's all and, you're going to do? And then I will also say that the network library, some of them are working hard to convert the ones that they have as well. So, and okay. they're adding them to BARD. Okay, thank you. My pleasure. Question at mic one. Yes, thank you. Michael Talley here from Alabama. I was just wondering, how can state libraries participate in this pilot program? What? I'm sorry, can you ask the question again? This is a pilot program. Ah. <laughs> The, um, the NLS will be selecting a few libraries to start that project, and you will need, if your library is selected for the initial pilot, you would need to speak to your local or your network library to participate. Okay. All right. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Karen. John, you want to do your announcement now since you're, uh, you're up there before we, yeah, because you're going to be there for 25 minutes otherwise. So go ahead, John, give your announcement <laughs> at microphone three. I have, a, I have a brief announcement from the uh, Constitution and Bylaws Committee. Uh, first, I want to let you all know that at the present time we have two amendments that we are uh, bringing forward. Patrick, we're having a hard time hearing the floor mics. Go ahead, John, and try to speak as loud as you can. The first of those announcements... Uh, or the first of those amendments uh, has to do with an issue that has surfaced in, in recent times over the development of a uh, uh, code of personal conduct policy. Uh, the purpose of that am proposed amendment would be to grant the board authority to establish uh, such, uh, such a policy and uh, determine actions to be taken in the case of uh, actions by individuals that, viol that violate that policy. The second amendment, proposed amendment, uh, actually came to life uh, as a, as a follow-on to something that came to light in the board meeting on, on Friday. And uh, the amendment that resulted uh, the proposed amendment that resulted would, would bring about a change to 
bylaw nine, which is the last, uh, the last bylaw in the book, the one that anybody hardly ever gets to, uh, but it would bring about more transparency in how, uh, in, in, in the defining the role of the Constitution and Bylaws Committee uh, in terms of, uh, no, we are not. Karen, we're not, no, we are not reading amendments. I'm just telling you what's coming. Um, so those are the two we have. The other important point that I want to share is that um, because I, we're not aware of any further uh, amendments forthcoming, um, we will not hold the scheduled uh, Constitution and Bylaws Committee meeting that's on the, on the calendar for today, but uh, we'll make a separate decision about um, holding a meeting tomorrow, depending on need. And also the final thing to share is that a reminder that the deadline for submitting uh, proposed Constitution and Bylaws amendments is midnight tonight. Thank you. Thank you, John. Next, we are going to hear from our chair of our resolutions committee, Mark Reichard from Arlington, Virginia. Mark. Good morning, ACB. Is it still morning? Yes, it is. I'm going to make you guys really happy just by doing something real quick. I guarantee you, you guys are going to shout out. You're going to be so excited. You can't, we just won't be able to control yourselves. I'm not going to be reading a resolution to you this morning. <laughs> you guys don't like resolutions. <laughs> anyway, uh, just a real quick announcement this morning. So a couple things I want to say. Um, and I'll say more about this at the end of the week. It's really been an honor for me over these last now seven years. Uh, Mitch Pomerantz first appointed me to this position in 2013. And then uh, this lady named Kim Charlson got elected, our first lady president of the American Council of the Blind. And uh, maybe in spite of her best uh, intentions or best uh, what thinking, she decided to continue what Mitch foisted off on all you poor victims. And, uh, and so anyway, it, it's been a real privilege um, to be part of this process. And I, I will also say this to you. Um, our committee is great. And yes, I know the reputation is that resolutions, these people sit up till 2 o'clock in the morning and that they're really kind of annoying and exhausted. Uh, we've tried our best to not do that over these last few years and tried to make the meeting shorter. But my advertisement to you is... I, I can honestly tell you, having done resolutions and worked in the ACB world for, what, 20-some years, it is the best education you will ever get in understanding not just stuff that goes on at the national level, but really pretty much all the issues that folks who are blind and visually impaired are concerned about, and particularly our organization. I really, really mean that. There's lots of ways you can volunteer, and I hope that you are uh, pitching in in whatever way you can. But for us... Uh, to really get into not, I'm not even just talking about federal legislation or regulations, but to really understand why do we take the positions that we do? Why, why, why are we going in this direction and not in that direction? There's just nothing like sitting around a group, uh, a table with a group of folks from experts to novices who debate out all the issues and really get into it and then come up with hopefully a product that is frankly your product. Um, resolutions are the written embodiment of what this membership wants to say to the world 
and, uh, and we take that work very seriously. So anyway, the only thing I want to say to you now is this, that if you have not yet submitted a resolution, you and or your affiliate, if you're still working on it, uh, the official deadline for turning in resolutions is 9 p.m. this evening. 9 p.m. this evening. How do you turn them in? You turn them in to yours truly. Um, and uh, the best way to do that would be to send me an email. I'm going to say this email twice because, of course, I can't do anything in a short fashion that would be easy and memorable. My personal email address is forjustice at concentric.net. And that is the number four followed by the word justice, G-U-S-T-I-C-E, the at sign, and then the word concentric, like concentric circles, and no, that isn't the way that we spin in the resolutions, but it's spelled C-O-N-C-E-N-T-R-I-C, concentric, C-O-N-C-E-N-T-R-I-C dot net, for justice at concentric.net. If that's too crazy for you, or you can't, didn't hear it, or you just want to call me up and say hello and keep me company, because you know I get a little lonely during convention, uh, you can reach me on my cell phone, which is 571-438-7895. 571-438-7895. We meet in the strong boardroom, because of course we would. We wouldn't meet in the weak boardroom. Uh, I, if, if there is one, I suspect if there is a weak boardroom, maybe it's in the riverside. Only there, You'd only have the strong boardroom. Ooh, oh, there you go. Next year, this time, I'll be operating a blind vending stand in Kankakee, I think. Uh, this will be the last time you'll be seeing me. Uh, anyway, down by the riverside. Isn't that where you go? You lay down your burdens by the riverside? Anyway, uh, we're meeting in the strong boardroom in the Hyatt, second floor, I believe that's right, second floor in the Hyatt. Come and see us, and especially if you are bringing liquid refreshment, we'd love to see you. Uh, we share, uh, we, we break bread together there on occasion, and uh, let's see, I think, oh, the final thing. This year we're doing something a little bit different, and I really appreciate Kim uh, for her help in making this happen. So uh, I am joined this year in leadership of this committee by a gentleman by the name of Gabe Griffith. Gabe is from California. A lot of you guys know him. Splendid fellow, has served for many years in the California Council of the Blind in a whole host of ways, but certainly in the resolutions committee uh, process there in California, but then also at the national level. And this year he and I are tag-teaming the resolutions process. That is to say, we're sort of co-chairing co this committee this year, which means uh, you'll get to hear a little bit of variety in the voices you hear in terms of reading resolutions. Oh, there you go. <laughs> if you'd like, I could do an imitation of Kim Charlson reading resolutions, <laughs> which is a whole other experience. Hi, this is Kim Charlson. <laughs> In any case, all right. So, you, uh, really, really, really appreciate, really appreciate uh, uh, having Gabe's help. And uh, so, come on by, see us at the Strong Board Room if you have resolutions. Resolutions deadline 9 p.m. tonight. We'll see you later on in the week. Thank you. Great job. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. 
next, we're going to hear from our convention chair, Janet Dickelman, with a few announcements. Janet is at mic three. Good morning, everybody. There, hey, there go. you go. Coming All right. around good, Janet. Uh, there is no weak board room, just <laughs> FYI, Mark. Um, Soundscapes, Microsoft focus groups, uh, still have a couple spaces available. So if anyone is interested, stop by at Cascade B, either at 415 today or 715 today, and see if there's any space available. A um, couple of room changes. The Catholic Mass this evening will be in Keating. Keating is on the second floor of the Riverside. Also, um, was that question? If you're asking questions, I have no idea what you're saying. Oh, third floor. I'm sorry. I, okay, I'm sorry. That's what you were saying. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Yes, Masses and Keating on the third floor of the Riverside. And a couple of other changes. The scholarship winner's reception tomorrow evening has been moved to Douglas on the second floor of the Riverside because it outgrew a suite. Same thing for the DKM reception on Wednesday. That has moved to Anthony on the second floor of the Riverside. Um, if you lost a pair of sunglasses on the bus going to Cooperstown, they have them at the information desk. Also, if you want a table for the banquet, please stop by the information desk. Tables are for eight. Give your names, give a contact name and a phone number so that Vicki can call you and let you know what table you'll be seated at. And one quick reminder about Marketplace. We have a wonderful marketplace location on the first floor. We have 96 seating right around marketplace. They take credit cards, so it's great. There are some tables outside of our general session room up here. These are marketplace tables. Please don't eat at those tables. And Madam, or Sir, Vice President, that's all I have. With the 96 seats, that's yes, the, the cafe. Yes, the cafe on yeah. the lower level here in the convention center. And I tell you, every time I come across that hallway into that lounge up from the atrium, I can smell all mm -hmm. that food. I get yep. hungry every time I walk over this way. So but please it's don't really sit at the good, I'm tables up on the second floor. Yeah. Thank you, Janet. Uh, next, uh, we have another special celebration. It's the 50th anniversary of the Blind Information Technology Specialist Bits. Woohoo! 50 years. Can you imagine when they started? It was like punch cards and. <laughs> We're going back a long time, 50 years, guys, I'm telling you. All right. So. To, to, to talk to us a little bit more about BITS and their 50-year history, I'd like to introduce Richard Fila. Richard! You know, um, it's been a long time getting here, 50, 50 years. But, um, you know, before I tell you about some of the things that, uh, that have happened recently, we have to go back 50 years to see why and how it all happened. 
Well, back, back in 50 years, it would have been uh, 1969. And that's, that's quite a memorable year, historically. You had the moon landing. You had Woodstock. You know, um, for, for anybody that doesn't remember Woodstock, don't worry, there are people that attended there that don't remember Woodstock. <laughs> and we had the age of Aquarius, you know, peace and understanding and all that jazz, you know. So anyway, for some time, there were several programs around the country that were uh, training persons who were blind or visually impaired computer programming. And uh, the, the individuals were coming out with very little with respect to technology or accessibility. It amounted to a piece of elastic, garter elastic, and a deck of cards with a program. And these people were going out with this elastic and saying, to this and this program, I can do the job for you. Well, that, that really wasn't working too well, and people being that there was a blind vine started finding out about each other, and they tried having meetings around the country, and they wouldn't work it out too good, but, but some had been attending HCB convention, and uh, they decided that uh, in 69 that maybe they had to form an organization. And some of the people that were at convention said, yeah, well, let's do that, and so in 1969, they, they formed an organization called VITPI, Visually Impaired Data Processors International. The, um, they decided they would meet at the same time that ACB would, would meet because that way they could take advantage of the uh, exhibit hall and see what new technology was available. And they continued do that, doing that and waiting for technology then early in the 70s by George, the Opticon came out. And that was a really game changer because now not only could they read their listings in actual print, but they could also read the, the terminal screens with the uh, attachment that they could hook to it. Well, that all worked for a while. They, they, uh, they kept on doing that and they, they held uh, their meetings and had different kind of presentations, you know, how do you do uh, flowcharts when you're blind and, and such. And uh, they continued to meet with, with uh, ACB and then came the microcomputer. And that started causing new things to happen. The, the new uh, computers and these primitive voice synthesizers there were some clever, clever people that were out there that, that decided they could, they could probably make them work together and come up with a program. You have people like Larry Skutkan who works at APH. He's one of the, one of the forefront adopters of, of uh, this, this uh, work. And he developed programs for the Apple computer. And so people are now beginning to use computers. And then in 1981, the PC came on the market, and of course, more and more people uh, started getting into development. So now, now we have computers that we can use, and we were going along with DOS and using computers, and then getting to applications and starting to do checkbooks and and bank accounting and word processing. And then some ugly thing rose its head in the late 80s. 
the graphical user interface, Windows. That really became a problem because this is all something now that's totally graphical. We can't see it. We can't work with it. So um, we were really worried. Uh, some of our, we had a couple of, of our uh, members attended um, CSUN back in 1992, and a Microsoft representative had to be, happened to be there from their accessibility group. Well, they, they told me about it. I said, well, let me at him. I was, I was a program chairman then. I said, let me at him. I want him. And I started talking with him, and he was really hesitant to want to come out here because he was afraid that, that somebody was going to lynch him. I said, well, any, I said, I'll tell you what, if they want to lynch you, I'll take the lynching. But you come out here, and I think you'll find that it's not, it's not so bad. In 1993, at the San Francisco Convention, he uh, was there, managed to get him to come to that convention. We got IBM with their talking uh, program for OS2, and, and other people that were there, there was a lady from uh, Georgia Tech that was working on, on accessibility for X Windows uh, for uh, Linux. So these people were there, and we had a great program that year. After the sessions were over, now, I always said that things happen for a reason. That was the only year that Texas Affiliate had an, a suite. I inv took the liberty, invited them up to, to the suite so they could sit in comfort and, and uh, chat. Well, they chatted for a while, to the point that after several hours, the president came and ran them out of there. <laughs> They were having such a good time. And they, from then on, they, they continued to exchange information. And finally, the, there was a solution so that programmers could actually access the, uh, the computer information from uh, Windows. Well, we've, we, we've, we went through that. And then uh, in the early 2000s, there um, seemed to be more, uh, more and more ubiquitous uh, technology that needed access. So we we uh, we took we took that under under um, consideration, and and uh, more people were asking to join the organization. So instead of just professionals, we changed our governance documents and allowed anyone that had interest in the use of and and, uh, and uh, wanting to learn computers. So and our membership grew, and we had. Uh, more uh, members joined, uh, a lot of the ones that were in VISI then joined us, and we have, we have done other th additional things. We start having conferences uh, over computer uh, services, and those worked for a while, and then, then uh, the greatest thing to come to us was Zoom. Now with Zoom, we have a conference room that, that holds um, uh, I want to call them Zoominars, not webinars. They're Zoominars where we have presentations for the members. Sometimes we have some that are open to the public. We have our board meetings on it. We have a Saturday night chat. And more and more, we're, we're having more activities that, are, that we can hold on Zoom. It's a great tool for communication and information. So as, as, as we go into our 51st year, uh, we 
we will, I would say that it, as long as there's technology that's coming on the market that requires us to learn how to deal with a technology, uh, technology and accessing, there will be a need for bits. I know myself, I, I've told people that as long as I can put one foot in, in front of the other, I'll, I'll be there working with it. So we're holding our banquet tonight, and if anybody's interested, it's going to be interesting and, and a lot of fun. So I thank you for the time, and let's, let's go and, uh, and continue accessing our technology. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Richard. And I think this is unprecedented, but I think we can pull it off. For CCLVI and BITS, let's see if we can do a quick version of Happy Birthday. So is everybody ready? All right. And I can't sing, so you got to sing loud so they don't hear me, please. So here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Bits and CCLVI. Happy birthday to you. And many, many more. All right. Next, we are going to do door prizes from our New York affiliate, Mike number seven. Hey, welcome to All right, New York. We're going to Good do morning, two MTV. door prizes. Two door prizes. Take it away. Hello. Do you want to do it or should I? Uh, well, you don't know what they are. Oh, well, I don't know what they are. Okay. Okay. Well, hello, ACB. This is Carrie, and that's Phyllis, and we are doing door prizes. So let's see what we got here. Our first is a marvelous zipperless cooler. It can keep ice up uh, cold up to two days. Well, we need to turn it up, get a little closer to the mic, oh, and we'll ask Patrick to turn it up a little okay. bit. We're having a hard time Oops. hearing the prize. Okay, the first prize, Much the better. Titan zipperless cooler, 16-can capacity. It holds ice uh, cold up to two days. It has Rhinotech water and stain-resistant exterior, and it's really cool. So it's a gift from GDUES which is Guide Dog Users of the Empire State. Oh, wow. Thank you, Guide Dog Users. Good for all and of your waters. Can, can you and, and the winner is... Paper. Pull a paper. We are public, I'm pulling a paper. And I'll read the paper. I'm shuffling. Here we go. Okay. Our winner, John McCann. Yay, John! John McCann! Tucson, Arizona. But John McCann is not originally from Tucson, Arizona. John is in the John front McCann row over here from Arizona. Wait, wait. New Yorker. But we need so. All right, congratulations, is John. John. Is that you in the front? Our next door prize. Okay, I'm going to deliver that to you in a moment. The next is a um, atomic clock from ACBNY. We have Nathan Brannon of Seattle, Washington. Uh, Nathan not is not here. He's Please not draw here. Our next name. We have Amanda Wilson, White, Georgia. Amanda, Amanda Wilson. Wilson from Georgia? Please draw another name. Okay, there we go. We, oh, another Georgia. Cicely Nipper, and it's Covington, Georgia? Cicely from Georgia, where are you? Georgia, okay. Draw another name. It's, it pays to stay till the end, everybody. Okay, we have Michael Alvarez from Portland, Oregon. Oh, I know he's 
He's here from Oregon, up in the Oregon okay. affiliate. Michael, all right. Front row, stage left. All right. Thank you, New York Door Prize team. And now we have time for announcements. Hello. Excuse me? Oh, sorry. I was just saying if I could take a point of personal privilege. Okay, point of privilege, please do. Uh, my parents, uh, Bob and Liz Regan, were volunteered the last few days. They are in the car on the way home listening on ACB radio. So thank you to my parents for coming to this convention. I really oh, appreciate showing you. Oh, of course. They were wonderful. Carrie, your mom, Liz, is a rock star. Yes, she is. <laughs> Tell her thank you. Yes, she is. All right, now it's time for our final announcements of the morning. Mike number six, one up from New York. Mike six on the left yeah, side. Yeah, Jim Urock, ACB Nebraska. Yes, Jim. Wanted to piggyback off of the happy birthday. For those of you who are sweet eaters, CCLVI will be offering a cake tonight at, their, at our um, anniversary party along with a cash bar. So show up, eat, and get drunk. Thank you, Jim. The diabetics may want to skip that event. No. <laughs> All right. Next, next announcement. Mike number five, right up from Jim. This is Teresa Curry from Louisiana. And I just want to tell you all that we have $500 for the general fund, $500 for burial forum, and check for $300 for the Brenda Dillon Memorial Walk. Woo! Hip, hip, hooray! Thank you so much, Louisiana. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Secretary's We'll Mike. take many of those announcements. Thank you, Louisiana. Yeah, you I'm going to put you? my Illinois hat on. Secretary Mike Nine. All right. Mike, thank you. Good morning. I'm not going to do anything secretarial right now. I'm putting on my Illinois Council of the Blind hat. Barbecues, baseball, swimming, pic picnics, those are all things we look forward to in the summertime. Is there anything to look forward to after summer? Yes, there is. Cold, hard cash from the Illinois Council of the Blind through our summer raffle. Tickets are $5 each or five tickets for $20. You have the chance to win 50% of whatever is raised, so the more we sell, the more you can win. You can see Rachel Schroeder, Karen Campbell, or Tom Jones in the Illinois delegation, or you can contact, uh, and you can check the newspaper for the phone numbers if you, I don't want to take the time to give them all, uh, to make contact. If you cannot get them at convention, that's no problem. You may contact our office at 217-523-4967 to purchase tickets. Thank you very much, and we, we want your money, and we'll, in return, we'll give you some back. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. All right, Mike one. First mic here. Is this mic? Okay, um, this is Freddie Pico, and I should have, should have made this announcement last night, but I got nervous. Oh. I, wa I wanted all of you to know that one of our members, Oral Miller, has been attending ACB conventions consecutively for over 50 years. Thank you, and thank you, Oral. Uh, Washington, D.C., the land of? 
Taxation without representation. You taught me well, Oral. All right, Mike. Mike Seven, the New York Mike. Mike Seven. Thanks, Dan, for saying that, because um, I wouldn't have known it was me. Hi, it's Lori from ACB of New York, and I just want to remind folks, um, and there will be something going in the newspaper, that New York is hosting an informational session. Uh, Drop in for five minutes or hang around and hear what's going on with other folks around the country on Tuesday from 12.30 until 4.30 in suite 1550 in the Riverside. For those who can read the signs in the hall, it says there it goes to room 148, but we really are at the end of the hall. Um, and we're going to be discussing accessible pedestrian signals and some legal situations that are going on in New York and um, some other issues that disability rights advocates um, is working on throughout the country. So please come and join us. Um, bring your lunch, bring a snack. We ha- um, you know, feel free to come and, and hang out. And we also have hoodies for anybody that's cold at the ACB booth. $30 for one or $50 for two. And they say, I with a heart and ACB. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. And Laura, you said suite 1550-1550? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Suite 1550 on, in the Riverside on Tuesday from 1230 to 4. Thank you, Lori. Yes. Any other announcements? Yep. Here I am. Okay. Your name, Mike 2, your name and uh, your affiliate. I'm Judy Jackson, and I'm uh, with ACBGE, and I just want all of you to know that we are hosting a resume writing workshop. Um, our, um, she, she is not coming um, on behalf of um, Ira, but she... Um, is a friend of mine that I met, and her name is Joanne McIntyre, and she is coming. Um, We have our slots um, tomorrow and Tuesday. We would have had them today, but her flight got canceled out of New York yesterday, so she'll be here today, Um, and we can do some this evening. If you will contact me, um, by phone at area code 940-255-9241. We will get you a slot. Um, I, when you contact me, I will give you um, an email where you can send your resume. If you don't have a way to do that, no worries. You can either give her your information orally, and she can uh, type it in and get it formatted, or um, you can um, give her a print copy. So no, don't worry if you don't have your resume here. We will figure how to make all of that happen. Um, Again, it's through ACBGE, and we're hosting a resume writing workshop. If you are interested in new employment or anything like that, please contact me, 940-255. Nine two four one. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Judy, and thanks to the government employees. This is a wonderful service. Please take advantage of it if you would like a professional resume at the end of this process. Thank you, Judy. Same Mike, Mike two again behind Judy. Yes, this is Tom Frank from Vermont, and I didn't get up to the mic fast enough when Karen was speaking, but 
since the national is changing their name, they dropped a handicap to disabled. In Vermont, we wanted to change the name of our special services library for the, and we asked in our January meetings, so what do we do? We do audio, braille, large print. So I'm chair of the committee, advisory committee. So I said that almost spells able, but we don't have an E. And somebody said electronic. So in a period of two months, we got the governor and the legislature to approve the change. And we now have the able library because everybody is able to read. Congratulations. Congratulations, Vermont. Excellent. Well done. Any more announcements? Okay. Hearing none, we are adjourned till tomorrow at 8.30. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Thank you all.